0: 720, I got to tell you, Tom, I love that song. Oh, Eddie Money. Uh, hi, it's Nick Degilio on 720 WGN. Live in the Skyline Studio, 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago. Here until uh, 4 a.m. It's a Monday into Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday morning here, 312-981-7200 is our phone number. If you would like to join us, we would love to hear from you. Um, and we're here to uh, keep you informed, to keep you... Uh, 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 entertained, and all kinds of great stuff. And uh, so there you go. Uh, Coming up on the show, Nathan Godfrey is going to join me. Um, He's the co-director of a documentary called Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus. His mother is the co-director of the movie, Linda Godfrey. She's been on the show before. She's written a lot of books about weird creatures. Right, Tom? Cryptozoology. Cryptozoology. The mysterious sightings of weird creatures. A lot of weird ones out there. What are some of your favorites? Oh, well, I mean, you got Bigfoot slash s- Sasquatch. Sasquatch slash Daryl. Da- <laughs> <laughs> my name's Daryl. Darryl. Daryl's a good guy. Yeah. Really big feet, though. And uh, you got the Mothman. The Mothman, Mothman's which is just favorite. legendary. Yeah, he's he's a good one. Jersey Devil is always good. Mm-hmm. I love stories about the Jersey Devil. Um, My my grandmother used to tell me stories about this thing called the More. The Moore. Yeah, whereabouts did the Levamore get seen? I don't I don't know if it's English or Irish or something like that. But she used to tell me that it lived in her closet in the basement, so that we wouldn't go in there. <laughs> so I guess that f- I would like to put the Levamore in the uh, pantheon of great of great monsters and and things that are unexplained because I yeah. I've never gone in that closet. I don't know what's it'll in there. keep you out of the closet. That's yeah, for sure. Either it's a Levamore or it's where did the, the name Levamore come from? Is there a is there an origin? origin? origin story it's a more. and what is the what kind of creature is it did she tell you what kind of creature it is what it looks like is it is it does it walk on two legs does it have fur horns what's going on she just she told me it was like a a mon just a monster that lives in in the closet. closet yeah yeah so it's either that or it's the hvac unit because it makes a lot of noise in that closet. Is it? Did this traumatize you as a child? I mean, uh, me not so much. I, I didn't like well, you it. You have younger brothers. Yeah, younger brothers. Um, were they also warned of the Leavemore? They were definitely warned of the Leavemore. <laughs> we would go. We would go on. We would go on vacations to visit family in England, and we'd stay at my auntie Tessie's house. And uh, some of the older cousins would tell us... About the Leavemore. Yeah, if the Levamore was outside. I love those creepy legends, man. Yeah. I love it. It's always fun uh, late at night to talk about creepy legends and sightings of weird monsters and stuff. So we're going to talk about this. This documentary, which I just watched, uh, is called Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus. And it takes place in the southern west, southern west corner of Wisconsin which borders Minnesota and, and and our lovely state. And um, there have been sightings of big black cats. And the DNA uh, uh, says that it doesn't exist. The DNR says that it doesn't exist, that they don't exist. And uh, But there have been several, several witnesses and several stories with these giant black, what they think look like panthers. And this documentary is very compelling and really kind of creepy. Um, And it's Wisconsin, and the Amish were involved. Um, So anyway, it's a fascinating documentary about these creatures that might be running around in Wisconsin, like big black cats, big black black, uh, mountain lion-like, but they're black, like pitch black. Um, So we're going to talk with uh, Nathan about uh, about this documentary, which is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, coming up after midnight, a good friend, Rod Pyle is going to join us. He's our space expert. We always love having Rod on. We'll talk about space issues and stories and things like that. And if you have any space related questions, we would love to hear from you. 312-981-7200. Rod's always a uh, fun to talk to. You know, uh, you can watch the Johnny Carson show every night on antenna TV. And then every morning, uh, weekday morning at two thirty, we play back clips, uh, from, uh, the classic Johnny Carson comedy bits. We'll do, uh, either sketches or interviews, or um, stand-up comedy. Well, uh, this morning we're going to be playing back Elvis Found Alive in Bismarck. <laughs> so this is a bit that they're doing where Elvis was found alive in Bismarck. Yeah, and uh, Johnny grills him a little bit. Make sure it's the real Elvis. I see. I see. Well, anyway, I mean, this is, you know, timely considering that um, a couple of days ago was the anniversary of uh, of Elvis's death. 43 years, if you can believe that. Elvis Elvis died 43 years ago. So, uh, also things that make you weird anywhere but Chicago. We're going to talk about uh, Chicagoisms, things like that. And then also very weird traditions across America. Dennis Quaid adopts a cat that's named Dennis Quaid. And uh, we're going to talk about unbelievable weather records and more. We would love to hear from you anytime. 312 981 7200. So we're going to uh, take a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to jump into the very strange and weird and mysterious world of cryptozoology and talk about the documentary, Return to Wildcat Mountain. There might be some big, black, crazy cats running around in Wisconsin.
1: We get it almost
2: every night, and when that moon gets
0: All right. Hello, Nick DiGiulio here on 720 WGN. Live in the Skyline Studio, 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago here till 4 a.m. Coming up on a Tuesday morning. 312-981-7200 is our number. Um, my guest right now is uh, Nathan Godfrey, who's the co-director, along with his mother, Linda. Uh, of a documentary called Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus. Um, and uh, there have been sightings of big black-furred cats, maybe panthers, maybe mountain lions, uh, that people, ex- you know, zoologists exist to say that they insist that they don't exist. But um, several sightings in south, uh, southwest um, Wisconsin. And uh, have been have been noted and uh, it's put together in, in this really interesting documentary called Return to Wildcat Mountain. And let's welcome Nathan Godfrey to the show. Hi, Nathan. Hello. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. this is wonderful. Yeah. So I have had your mom on the show. Yes, and uh, it was it interesting. To, was it interesting? Because she's written a bunch of books called, like, you know, like uh, uh, I know what I saw, which is about modern day encounters with uh, urban legends and monsters. Uh, she's written American Monsters um, and uh, Real wolf men, Monsters Among Us. Uh, what was it like? <laughs> what was it like growing up with a mom who was, you know, uh, really sort of studying these weird legendary creatures?
3: Sure. Well, you know this. She wasn't always like that. Um, (laughs) She was a local newspaper reporter um, and just doing various stories around Walworth County. And she happened upon the story that changed everyone's life. And this is pre-Internet days, and it became an international sensation. Um, But the Beast of Bray Road, which is um, still they're, they're still making movies about it mm-hmm. and still doing TV shows about it. And that was probably Bray Road located probably five miles from our house. So it was a big deal.
0: Yeah. It's a big deal growing up. Well, tell us about the Beast of Bray Road. Sure. Well, um,
3: the Beast of Bray Road um, was especially popular. or It was seen quite a bit around, I guess it would be the late 90s. And it's a bipedal, bipedal, uh, wolf like feature, uh, canid, I guess. And it's surprised, it surprised, people saw it, uh, it, it attacked someone's car at one point. People were seeing it um, all over the place. And they had, apparently, they had a, a whole file at the police station of sightings going back 30, 40 years. So this thing was a local legend, and my mom broke the story about it, and it got picked up all sorts of different places. It was on Inside Edition back when that show was on. Um, Yeah, it was a big deal. People are still looking for it to this
0: day. What happens when someone uh, reports a sighting? Do, do I mean, there's obviously, you know, like the authorities are very skeptical about this kind of stuff. What happens sure. What happens when that, you know, what goes forward after that? Like someone is convinced that they saw something, they saw a creature, they report it. What goes on after that?
3: Okay, well, from my understanding and what my mom deals with, she's often contacted by, uh, by these people who have had an encounter or something and uh she vets them and just goes on with an investigation and you know reports on it mm-hmm.
0: what what uh what what are part of the inve- what kind of investigation does she do what what are, what are part of the investigator what does she do
3: okay so many times i know um i'm trying to, i'm speaking the best i can about what my mom does yeah but, yeah yeah um she's gone on site interviews th- does lots of interviews um talks to, you know, people in the surrounding areas, uh, goes to various locations, um, similar to what we did for this last movie.
0: Is there, is there, a, what, is, is there a, a, a strict definition of, of cryptozoology? What's the best way to describe cryptozoology to someone?
3: Um, it's the, the study of animals that are hidden. I, I guess mm-hmm. I wouldn't call myself necessarily cryptozoology expert, right? Um, but that would be that would be my definition: animals that are have been hidden and undiscovered, but okay. apparently seen.
0: So, uh, what about you personally? Have you ever had encounters? Um,
3: me personally, I have not had I have not had an encounter mm-hmm. uh, um, with any creature. I've been on different expeditions. Uh, but no, I have not actually had an encounter.
0: Do you have a, a, a favorite sort of legendary creature? Is, is, one of your, is what, what are some of your favorite ones?
3: I would say right now my favorite one is the these Black Panthers um, in the Driftless area in Wisconsin. Yeah. That's the one I'm closest to, well, I think. Well, uh, and I guess the Beast of Bray Road because it's, it's my childhood and I, you yeah. know.
0: What was it like? I mean, is it was so so uh, the other kids in Wisconsin, did they did you guys like discuss the legend of the beast? Why? Yeah,
3: actually, um, one one of the witnesses was in my class and he was the second second trombonist in our band.
0: <laughs> is that right? In
3: school band. Yeah, so it was very close. These kids several of them went to my high school. So this was a this was it's a small town. People were talking about it. Um, and it scared the, the yeah. crap out of a lot of people.
0: Yeah. So there was a kid in your class that was that was that that saw the beast.
3: Yes, and he lived out on this road, Bray Road, and he saw it with his he saw it with his cousin, and and he he told me, you know, matter of factly, that what he saw, and it was this large, hairy, large, hairy, terrifying thing that you know looks like a dog, but it walks with its you know legs back backwards like a dog um and uh and was running through a field wow and very similar to what a, a lot of other people have seen and uh, right around that time and to this day
0: to this day wow uh, has have there been any m- 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 the most recent sightings of the beast
3: Oh, she would have to ask my
0: mom that. Okay.
3: I haven't kept up all that much on, on the Beast. Okay. She's that, she's the real expert. Okay, that, I got you. Next time, that next,
0: next time I have her on the show, we'll talk about that for sure. Cool. Uh, I just watched the documentary a little while ago, Nathan. It's really good. Um, and it's, Oh, uh, well, thank you. And it was co-directed by you and your mom, Linda. Uh, the Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus. Um, when, when did you first hear about these these uh, sightings of these big black cats or black panthers with the really long thick tails and things like that? When, when did that uh, start? How long ago has this investigation uh, started?
4: Well, th-
3: this investigation started uh, with my mother's book, um, I Know What I Saw. And there is a chapter devoted to uh, this area and these Black Panther sightings around the Baraboo Hills area. So, um, and especially this small town, uh, Hillsboro, Wisconsin. Right. And I, so she wrote, she wrote the chapter and she got, she decided, um, she, I think she actually kind of shopped it around and she was trying to get people interested in it. And then just came the realization that we could make the movie ourselves and, and yeah go ahead and then uh it happened very quickly um she brought the idea to me, and i have a i have a film background I studied film in in school and have been making videos ever ever since doing uh graphic design work various artwork and um and i it just everything just came together mm-hmm. everything came together, and we were. We're off to the races within, I think, two weeks in Hillsborough doing interviews. Yeah. And the filming lasted um, on and off over the next, I would say, six months. We filmed, and then I've been working, you know, editing it ever since.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so, so you started filming it and, uh, and you just, you guys decided, okay, look, we'll do it ourselves. We'll make this, we'll, we'll, we'll do the investigation. We'll, and we'll document the investigation ourselves. Um, and, yes. and you got some very interesting, there's some really interesting people that you interviewed, Nathan, uh, um, yes. in the, in this, in this, in the, in the film and also some pretty interesting characters too, uh, that, mm-hmm. uh, that, 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 that popped up. Hey, by the way, I just want to uh, say that I think you, you're, you um, your animation and the uh, and the art that you did in the movie is really good, Nathan.
3: Oh wow! Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Very,
0: very cool. It adds kind of it adds a nice element of mood to it, and uh, it looks really cool. Um, wow! Thank you. So so uh, so there's these you know this is you're not supposed to see black giant black cats or giant black panthers in south in southwest Wisconsin. That's not supposed to happen.
3: No, and and that's you're not even supposed to see mountain lions according according to the DNR. Even though. The people of this small town and in the surrounding area have seen them, been seeing mountain lions, you know, quite frequently. Yeah. Um, but you are not supposed to see any black panthers because one, there is not, there's no, there's never been a melanistic or black mountain lion or cougar um, captured or documented in any known science. So that's not supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. So that leads leads you to so so what is it then? You know there's there's a couple species the jaguar has a melanistic variety and the leopard has a melanistic variety but uh cougars cougars do not so these things aren't really supposed to exist and that's what makes it so uh mysterious I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean it, it adds to the to to the mysterious element when you're watching the film. Um, sure. But there are so many testimonies, testimonies in yes. the movie. It's hard to argue, you know. Hold yes. on, uh, hold on a second, okay, Nathan. Sure. Nathan Godfrey is here. He's the co-director, along with his mother Linda, of the uh, documentary "Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus," and it's the about these mysterious big black cat creatures with giant tails that have been seen in Southwest Wisconsin. Very cool. <laughs> And the movie's really cool. Uh, it's available at it's Amazon Prime. Uh, so you can check it out on Amazon Prime if you want to watch it. A uh, really interesting documentary. Uh, it takes place all entirely in southwest uh, Wisconsin, right over here in our neighbors. Our neighbors are looking at, and out in the woods and they're seeing giant black cats with crazy long tails running around, and there's no explanation for it. We'll get back to that mystery uh, here on WGN. It's 312 981 7200. Smiled,
5: but I call you today.
0: All right, Nick DeGilio here on 720 WGN. We are live in the Skyline studio here until 4 o'clock. I'm your overnight dude every weekday morning from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. I keep you company and we keep you informed uh, and we keep you entertained. Uh, Nathan Godfrey is my guest right now. He is the co-director of a documentary called The Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus, uh, which is about all these unexplained, very weird sightings in southwest Wisconsin of these giant black cats, these giant black panthers. that are not supposed to exist. They're not supposed to exist in Wisconsin, but several, several people have seen them. And uh, so that's the mystery, and that's the weirdness that's going on over in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, Nathan, let's talk a little bit about how far back do these sightings go uh, historically? Sure, sure. Well, um, there,
3: Steve Stanek, I'll, I'll, I'll Stanek. is the local. Uh, was a loc- a former uh, newspaper editor there, and right. he is he is the guy who has been writing. He's been writing articles. I think since the '80s about this,
0: right? And, he's, and he's, he's he's featured prominently in the in the in the movie. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um,
3: and he has it, so he has sightings going back back. I, I think maybe to this to the '80s, early '80s, when he was at when people were actively seeing them. But he has heard from. We have another witness whose father saw one. She saw one. And she her father had seen one in the 60s. Um, and quite possibly, going back um, much further to you know the pioneer days, um, there's we unearthed some documents uh, regarding uh, um, sort of journals that some of the pioneers were uh, were describing the wildlife. and they gave they gave a bunch of different, way too many names for mountain lions. So it was sort of Steve Stanek's idea that perhaps the the reason they gave so many different names for what, for the mountain lions, uh, they it was possible they could be black.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Some of them could be black. Um, and then there, it goes back to Laura Ingalls Wilder, yeah. mostly known for uh, Little House and Prairie series, but she wrote another series called Little House in the Big Woods. And in Little House in the Big Woods, this, this was located, her grandfather's small cabin in Pepin, Wisconsin, which is about, I think, about 150 miles north of Hillsborough, the area we went to.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, she, she writes a story called Grandpa and the Panther. And in Grandpa and the Panther, he, just, he is chased. By what he described as a big black panther, which is, you know, you gotta you gotta wonder.
0: Yeah, gotta, and that goes back to Laura Ingalls. That's that's amazing. That really is. Sure. I mean, when I was when I was watching the movie, I was like, wait a minute, really? The author of Little House on the Prairie, uh, right. her, her relatives might have had an encounter with a giant black panther in Wisconsin.
3: Yeah, and you know, anyone who's seen a, a cougar, it, they don't. You don't. They don't look black generally. No. Yeah. Don't, yeah. I mean, there's some dark ones, but it's it's pretty clear. You know, you wouldn't describe it as a as a as a black cat. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so uh, yeah, it's it's really. Now, let me ask you this: uh, Are there like common elements to these sightings? Uh, the are there things that, that people repeat, like the because you talk to so many people who have these uh, these stories. Uh, what are the yeah. com- What are the commonalities of the stories?
3: Well, I would say the biggest, one, um, is, the biggest one is the the size. While it, it varies from, we're talking like three and a half foot without the tail to five feet without the tail, many people describe it as being the size of a very large dog. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, and the biggest thing is, another big thing is the long tail. So, and this gets into what the DNR people who have reported these sightings to the DNR they they the DNR basically has a you know a, a quick answer in that okay it was either a black lab or a house cat that was basically that it's either a black lab or it was a house cat but these these witnesses all describe this very long tail and if you look at any of those like, a leopard or a, a mountain lion. it is a very long rope-like, thick rope-like tail, mm-hmm. very distinguishable. House cats don't have that. Black labs certainly don't have that. Um, they and they describe the they describe the the walk that it, it's you know a, a cat walks very differently than than a canine, for instance. and it, they say it was like sometimes it was like a big cat. It was like a big cat, um, you know. So different, um, they've had, a lot of them are varied. Um, Some people have seen them very up close. Um, We've had a witness, um, it it startled one of the witnesses uh, who was squirrel hunting at the time um, and was stood up uh, 30 feet, 30 feet from where they were hunting and snarled. (laughs) And growl They describe the they describe the uh, the sound of it. Um, sometimes being of like a, a sort of scream, mm-hmm. similar to what you would imagine a mountain lion sounds like, to more more of a roar as well. Which is uh, mountain lions don't really roar, but jaguars do roar. Mm-hmm. So those are, I guess, those are some of the things that, uh, yeah. Similarities between the sightings.
0: When uh, when when the witnesses are, are, are contact when people contact the DNR, so they just basically get shut down. Is that what really happens? They basically yes, they basically get shut down. That is that is what happens. Um, it's very,
3: and we did we speak we spoke to in the film a former DNR a DNR warden right um, for Wildcat Mountain who has. Had seen this himself twice, and his family saw it. And this is a guy. He he also lived out west. He lived in they, they moved uh, to Wisconsin from Colorado, where they dealt with mountain lions a lot more, you know, more sure. frequently. Sure, sure. And he he saw a black one, and he he described it as black. Um, and his his children had. Over the course of I think like fifteen years, their family had four different encounters. Wow! With with this, you know, the same thing, and it was, um, you know, everyone described as being extremely intimidating, extremely intimidating.
0: Yeah, yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's 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 terrifying. I mean, you see a giant black cat with a long. I mean, I you know, in the movie. The description of the tail really sort of freaked me out. Like the the way that they mm-hmm. described the tail, just how thick it was and how yeah. long it was, and and it was consistent. You know, from lots of different people giving testimonials uh, about it. Um, uh, it, it. But the tail is the is one of the creepier things about this.
3: Sure, absolutely. And what really, you know, it's uh, uh, the DNR. Many times they they say that people are seeing house cats. Now I can sort of see how this could sometimes be I could see how a house cat from a distance someone might you know someone might think a, a house cat could be this thing but these are up close and these are people who live in the area who see animals every day and then you know hunters farmers the first thing that Gonna, you know, or the last thing that's gonna jump to their mind is is a, a giant black panther. Yeah, they're gonna see it for what it is. it yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and you know, what about Yeah,
0: go ahead. Sure. Go ahead, Steve. What? Well,
3: yeah, Steve Stannick. He by this he became very very wary of the DNR um, as many of the local people had been, um, as they reported them, the DNR basically just shut them down and wouldn't even come out and investigate after the sighting and just told them they're seeing something else. And, you know, it it got townspeople talking that, you know, maybe people, they felt they were getting ridiculed, basically. Yeah. So people people stopped even reporting it in a lot of cases. Oh, I see but they but they did keep reporting it to Steve Sten, who had been writing faithfully these updates uh, on Black Panthers, you know for thirty years
0: it's got to be i mean how frustrating is it to be to have the d n r be so dismissive It's got to be very frustrating, right
3: It's extremely frustrating, especially after being talking to these town people, town townspeople, and I'm one hundred percent convinced that there's, there's something here, but you have to go and, and talk to them. Right. You have to go and, and just – and if they did, they, they would have to come to the conclusion unless for some reason they just didn't want to come to that conclusion that there's something, there's something out there and something weird,
0: um,
3: something strange, yeah. something different.
0: <laughs> you, you know, it would be interesting to see if, like, maybe the DNR would hire people who weren't so skeptical. You know, you know what I mean? Like somebody who, right, right. you know, like somebody who, you know, you hire someone who's maybe a little bit more open to the fact that maybe there's some mysteries out there. There might be some creatures lurking around that we don't know about, and it might be worth investigating. I mean, we could we could find something brand new, you know? Yeah,
3: maybe like an X Files type
0: thing uh, yeah. for, for the DNR. Yeah, no, like I, I, a little yeah. bit
3: more open minded.
0: I totally agree. Well, I mean, the, the X Files is—I mean, the, you know—the show is sort of based on this kind of stuff. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you have got one—one one who believes and one who's a skeptic uh, investigating these mysterious and weird things that are happening in the world. And I, I would love to have that. I would love to have that happen in the real world. You know, that would be very cool. Yeah, it absolutely. would. absolutely, it would. Uh, the the uh, album or the album, the movie is called The Return to Witch. To uh, which which mountain? I was thinking of the old Disney movie, uh, <laughs> "Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus." All takes place in Hillsboro, on the southwest uh, part of uh, Wisconsin, where there have been sightings of numerous giant black cats with long, crazy tails, uh, and uh, the movie is a, a, about this mystery. Uh, Nathan, hold on. Sure. All right, Nathan Godfrey is with us, co-director along with his mother Linda of uh, a really fascinating and interesting and creepy documentary called "Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus." Uh, it's all happening in Wisconsin. If you're from Wisconsin and you've got any uh, weird stories you want to you want to jump in here, it's 981 721 a lot of weird stuff in Wisconsin. Tom, brought stop <laughs> the Packers, uh, University of Madison. <laughs> The Packers. That's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. But the Wildcat Mountain, uh, man, uh, so the Black Panthers are out there, possibly, running around. Uh, It's very creepy and very scary. Documentary is terrific. We'll talk more with Nathan here on 720 WGN. Right. Hey, Nick DiGilio here on 720 WGN, live in the Skyline studio here until 4 a.m., as we are every weekday morning, 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., keeping you informed and keeping you entertained through the uh, early morning hours. 312-981-7200 is the, um, is the phone number. Coming up after midnight, our great space expert, Rod Pyle, is going to join us. We're going to talk about things that make you weird anywhere but here in Chicago, chicago Uh, Weird Traditions Across America, and Unbelievable Weather Records. Um, So that's all coming up. We would love to hear from you at 312-981-7200. My guest right now, and by the way, the news is next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. Uh, My guest right now is Nathan Gottfried. He's the co-director, along with his mother, Linda, of a really terrific documentary called Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus which is all about the sightings of these crazy giant black cats, giant black panthers with long tails that are not supposed to be in Wisconsin, but several several people have seen them and the documentary is all about this mystery. Uh Nathan, welcome back. Yeah. Uh, Hello. yes, we have uh, somebody on the line. Uh this is Dave on WGN. Go ahead, Dave.
6: Yeah, actually you know me a little bit, Nick. I'm Dave Jeff and used to be a movie critic for the Elton Courier News.
5: Um, yeah.
6: Anyways, uh Back in 2010, there were a bunch of reports, kind of just west of Elgin, about what, what we called the Plank Road Panther. Started with a hunter that set up a trail camera, you know, a camera that's tripped just by motion of an animal. And it looked like kind of a large cat. Mm-hmm. Then a couple of days later, someone else driving along Plank Road west of Elgin saw what he described as like a black cougar walking along through the snow. They found like uh, what seemed to be. Uh, what would you call it? like a den, lined with a bunch of fur, and gave me a pile of that? So when we started running stories a lot, all of a sudden a bunch of other reports uh, similar came in, ten or fifteen. Most of them were describing a black thing, but a lot of times here at night, so it's a little bit hard to tell exactly what the color was. Yeah, I brought the report of the fur that was in that. That you know the fellow had found and gave it to the. A guy at uh, Brookfield Zoo was kind of in charge of their uh, basically that kind of animal, right? And he was really fascinated. He said, "We've done a lot of DNA studies of cougars around the Midwest and look at it." And he kind of laughed. He said, "It's rabbit for
0: uh Oh!
6: And I called up an SIU expert on uh, cougars and kind of the same thing that was told by Nathan, this guy. Well, there's no such thing as a black cougar. Like, down in Florida, there's a variation of the cougar called the Florida panther, but so rare that it's, you know, on the endangered species, you and two or three of them are found dead every year. Yeah. And yet no one's ever found a black cougar dead anywhere in the United States. That's true. So they yeah. really kind of pooed that. But yeah. it's possible, too, that it was an escape, uh, you know, like an escape black
7: cougar. Yeah, stuff.
0: they talk about that in the movie. They talk about the possibility of it, uh, you know, of uh, at some point being a, an escape possibility. Dave, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, Nathan, tell me about the, the guy who runs the Big Cat uh, Center there. I mean, it just, you know, it, I, I loved watching him with the, with the big cats, like the relationship that he had with this. So tell me about that place, and where is it? Sure. Um, let's see.
3: I should know the exact location of that. Okay. In Rock okay, Rock Springs, Wisconsin. Okay. And that is Rock Springs, Wisconsin is, I don't know, around the Barbou area, so in the general vicinity. Okay. And um he- Let's see. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff and Jenny Kozlowski run it. Okay. And they have been, I think they started out, um, they told us a little bit, they started out, as many people do in that in that big cat world, doing photos with tiger cubs and, you know, making, making a living doing that. And they, they ended up, you know, falling in love with the cats. So they built this wonderful facility and housed these beautiful, magnificent, Beautiful, magnificent uh, beasts. Yeah, lions, tigers, anything. Um, and he gets into I don't want to get too much into it, but he gets into Wisconsin has some very, very interesting laws when it comes to owning yep. these big cats. Yep. So it just so happens that there's a, a lot. It's from what he what he said. There's a lot of big cats in Wisconsin that uh, don't need to be reported to the police. Don't need to be reported at all. Yeah, as long as it's not you know you're not actively showing them. So it's Wisconsin is sort of a, a magnet for these these big animals.
0: Yeah, it's There's fa- lots of them. It's fascinating stuff that, to to listen to that guy talking to watch him and interact with these big. Beasts is really really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very very cool. Um, was it easy to get yeah. the people? Was it easy to get the residents to talk? Were they were they happy to 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 that someone is like, listen, I'm interested in what you've seen.
3: I yes, I think so. Um, mainly because they have you know no one's done a big big story on them like this. Just, just you know just in the local papers and even amongst you know there's non believers um, in, in the town. You know. So this this was a chance for them to get their story out yeah. and to tell their story and these people who anyone who's who's seen it it's it's been a big moment in their life yeah. you know they'll never forget it and they want and they you know want to tell people what's what's going on out there.
0: Yeah. Well, it's great stuff. And by the way, I want to congratulate you on winning best documentary at the Midwest Weird Fest. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, a lot of fun. That must have been fit a lot right of fun. right in there. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, uh, Nathan, it's a really terrific documentary. Congratulations to you and your mother. Uh, the movie is called "Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus." All about the mysterious sightings of uh, black panthers in Wisconsin. Nathan, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Okay, Thanks for take care, buddy. Nathan Godfrey, uh, co-director of a uh, really fascinating, weird stuff going on in Wisconsin. Man, not supposed to be black panthers up there, but they've been seeing them. officially tuesday nick digilio here on 720 wgn we're live in the skyline studio 18 stories above beautiful downtown chicago here till 4 a.m uh, we would love to hear from you if you would like to call us it's 312-981-7200 if you got any space questions uh, concerning space uh we would love to hear from you and uh the world of outer space is what we're going to be talking about uh and uh if you want to jump in it's 312-981-7200 rod pile is an author, a journalist, editor in chief of Ad Astra magazine, and frequent guest here on the show. And uh, always great to have Rod on. Hi, Rod.
2: Hey, Nick. How and you? Happy Monday slash Tuesday.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's Tuesday here, so uh, yeah. But uh, but welcome, yeah. my friend.
2: Thank you. All right. It's been a while. Very nice to be back on and uh, share these warm temperatures with you.
0: Yeah. Well, you you. So where are you right now? You're in L.A. right? No, I'm, uh, actually, I had to,
2: uh, take a COVID shelter course, so I'm on a 42-foot cabin cruiser down in San Diego Bay for a few months.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I saw pictures of that. That's a that's a pretty nice little vessel that you got there.
2: Yeah, it's 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 a beast, you know? I, I had been looking for a long time, just recreationally, and they, this came along at the same time that I thought, I gotta move, I'm too exposed here, and, uh... It had clearly been loved by its previous owners, and it's got two diesel engines that are each about the size of my last sports car. So it's, it's, it's a big project, but everything, everything's nice. And it's kind of like living in a big floating RV, and driving one is like sitting on top of a 40-foot RV on the back trying to drive that way. So that's a bit of a learning curve.
0: I bet it is. I bet it is. What is, what is it like to just be living on the water?
2: Well, it's humid, for one thing, which I'm not used to, because part of L.A. I live in is is really dry, because L.A. is basically a desert with concrete all over it. But um, it's very quiet. It's nice. I mean, I've had boats before, and I always loved spending time in the marina, but I never did it for an extended period like this. So it was kind of a long-term dream, and now I've lived it, and I think by the time I'm done, I'll be ready to get back on to dry land.
0: Yeah, there you go. All right, well, that's yeah. uh, that's great. Uh, 312-981-7200 is the, uh, is the phone number. Uh, Rod, tell, tell, tell us about yourself again.
2: So I was born about the same time as NASA was in the late 50s and grew up during the space race, which was a pretty amazing time to grow up. The downside is, of course, that now that means you're an old person, but the upside was... I got to see this incredible adventure unfold from its very origin. So I was hooked. So most of my friends, you know, grew up in a fairly blue collar community. Everybody was into football and baseball because basketball wasn't really all all that yet. But I was a space geek, so I stayed home for all the Apollo launches and my parents let me stay home for all the moon walks and it was just great. So that really pinned my life trajectory right there. So even though I worked in entertainment and uh, both on the nonfiction and fiction side, network television and so forth, I kind of always was waiting to figure out how to get back to my first love, which was space. And so in the early 2000s, I started writing books about it. And then about, uh, I guess, three years ago now, I started editing at Astro Magazine for the National Space Society, which is a kind of a lavish, you know, full color print quarterly that we do. And it's really been a, a great way to kind of resolve my dreams, and I can't imagine a better way to make a living. It's yeah. really, it's cool.
0: Well, very cool, very cool.
2: Well, uh, radio, radio, radio would be. Yeah.
0: Better. It's, it's, <laughs> well, you get to appear right? on you get to appear on our show once a month. It's always a highlight. Always, a, always a pleasure to have you on, Rod.
2: Well, and it is for me too, and I, I can't imagine how much work that is. So I feel very fortunate that. I only have to do it burst because you guys have to do this every just about every day, and that, that's have, a we're, tremendous amount
0: of work. We have uh, we have, we fill five hours a night for five nights a week. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's fun though. I, like, I mean, I love doing it, and I've got you know, you know, I love my listeners very much, and it's always great to to interact with them, and it, you know, it makes the it makes the time fly by when we get to talk to the to to our listeners too.
2: And I'm always amazed how much they love you. You know, when I when I occasionally will look stuff up, or I'll get a ping on a the Google agent that's gone out and found some found something on you. You you have an incredible fan base, and they're very strong and dedicated, and that yeah. speaks volumes for your show.
0: It really. I mean, no, seriously. I you know, my fans are uh, are are amazing. They're really dedicated. and They're wonderful people, and uh, and and very supportive. So I'm 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 uh, I'm honored. So there's no question about yeah. it. Yeah. Alright, uh, let's see, we've got our, we've already got a call If you want to jump in, it's 312-981-7200 We've got a lot of uh, space news stories that we're going to get to As we always talk with Rod And then uh, we'll take your phone calls about space questions or anything like that At 312-981-7200 Here's Lulu, go ahead, Lulu
7: Oh, it's my favorite boys on this evening um,
8: <laughs> There's been a lot of astrological news lately The story's a little bit older But what do you think about, and I hope I have this right, the 36 Earth like planets that were discovered in the Milky Way?
2: So that that was kind of an interesting story. I think we may have talked about that once on here. It was, you know, these studies come out, of course, on a regular basis from astronomers and astrophysicists and so forth and when the, they're just routine stuff you know the the people do the science and they put them out for not all of them but i mean th- th- what i'm saying is it happens all the time astronomers always work and the rate of discoveries of new things in space and cosmology in general is accelerating because we have so much better tools than we used to with things like the hubble space telescope and so forth so these stories come out and then the news picks them up and kind of compresses them down to 36 new planets discovered so what that really was if memory serves was a study that said with some of the new knowledge we're picking up we think there's this many that are potentially rather earth-like but it's it's statistical analysis it's not that they spotted them you know because we still can't actually see exoplanets they're too far away and they're too small we can barely see stars with the current space telescopes we have But that said, in the next five to ten years, there's going to be a number of instruments going up that will begin to be at the edge of imaging these things. And there are some plans, they're not very far along, but there are some plans for a probe that will actually go out of the solar system, look back at Earth, excuse me, look back at our sun, use our sun as a magnifying glass. It's kind of a long explanation, but basically the sun has so much gravity that will bend light. And then you could start actually looking at exoplanets, and begin mapping them to an extent. So it's uh, a field that's just kind of emerging, but that particular study was kind of just a th- statistical analysis.
0: Yeah. All right, but it's Lulu. still cool. It's oh, good to know. Okay, right. great. Thanks, Lulu. Thank you. All right. Uh, hang Thank on, you. Hang on, Rod. You got it. All right, Rod Pyle is with us, author, journalist, editor-in-chief of Ad Astra Magazine. We've got a bunch of space stories to talk about. It's always so much fun to have Rod on. And if you want to jump in, it's 312-981-7200. We'd love to hear from you. Right. Hello. It's Nick DeGilio on 720 WGN. Uh, and uh, we are here in the Skyline studio till 4 a.m. It's a Tuesday morning. 312 981 7200. That's our number if you would like to join us. Rod Pyle, author, journalist, editor in chief at Ad Astra Magazine, the space expert, is with us. 312 981 7200. Hello, Rod. Hey, so
2: I have something to add for Lulu's question. Okay. I I was trying to remember exactly what that study was about, and it was an estimate of the number of technologically advanced civilizations in the galaxy. So it was a rework of the old Drake equation where you've got this variable n that, you know, it it flummoxes a lot of people because it's like, well, we're making a whole lot of assumptions here. And when Drake came up with that back in, I think it was the 50s, you know, he was spitballing with some friends on a napkin, basically, about, well, let's, let's make a bunch of assumptions about the number of stars in the Milky Way that we think and how many might have planets and so forth. So that's been fiddled with ever since then. So this is the, the latest bit of fiddling. So it makes a lot of assumptions, but you got to start somewhere. They do estimate that the average distance would be something like 17,000 light years. So communicating is going
0: to be pretty tough. Ah, wow, I see. Gotcha. All right. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, here's Sean on WGN. Go ahead, Sean. Hey Nick, love your show. Thank you, sir. I have
6: been suffering from the Julio withdrawal syndrome for about a week or so, <laughs> but I am cured now. All right. Well,
0: yeah, I was uh, I was hanging out with my folks because my dad's going through some medical stuff, so uh, I took oh, a few Well, also.
6: I wish you, wish you the best. Thank you. Yeah, Rod, um, I, I love space. Space is such a, a mysterious thing. You know, we're in, we're a floating ball. Uh, we're a floating ball in the middle of an endless void. It's so mysterious and intriguing. I had a question for you. You know, how, you know how like the movies are you know, like a mankind will seek out to colonize other planets. Do you think that will ever be possible one day, and mankind will will want to seek that out, or do you think
8: we can actually save this planet?
2: That's a really interesting question, and part of it's based on why do we want to go other places, and I'd actually, uh, thanks for bringing this up, because I'd made a note to, to mention this in one of the other stories. You know, we, we always like to talk in big terms about, you know, in the old days, before we said humankind, you say man will always strive to go over that, into that new frontier and over that next hill and so forth and that to me that is a valid goal it's a more philosophical goal of wanting to expand the species and learn more about the universe we live in and so forth but at some point especially with the rise of these commercial companies like spacex and blue origin and so forth both of which have aims at settling other other places in SpaceX's case mars in blue origins case you know higher Earth orbit um you know, we have to build a business case for it, but that's actually getting easier. So as that gets easier, I think the likelihood of this happening goes up. In the 70s, space settlements were all the rage in my circles because books had been written about it by people like Gerard O'Neill. And it was very exciting, but there's still that question of why. Why would we go out there? Is it to form a perfect utopian society? Is it, is it to form monocultural societies so that different uh, ethnicities and belief systems can be... Engaged, you know, entirely the way they want. But now we're beginning to realize there are sufficient resources out there and things to do that could actually make a profit and benefit our people who are still staying back here on this planet. So yeah, I think within twenty years you'll see the beginnings of that for sure. All
0: right, wow, that is so interesting. Thank you so much. All right, Sean, take care, buddy. I right, think the All question right. is: Does Sean want to go? Does Sean want to go? <laughs> I think he does. I think that's why he called it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. 7200 Okay, so obviously, you know, we're, you know, there's a the uh, on the West Coast, there's been this insane heat wave um, that's yeah. been happening, and California's Death Valley uh, recorded its hottest ever temperature on Sunday: 130 degrees Fahrenheit. 130 degrees. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's a dry. It's a but it's a, it's a dry heat. It's right?
2: a dry heat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Hudson, you bet. So, what's <laughs> the hottest temperature you've ever experienced?
0: remember uh, I you know it's got to be in the low 100s here in Chicago but you know it's it's mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a dry heat here um you know no. we get the we get some yeah. seri- we get some serious humidity in the summer here it's miserable well and that, and that
2: makes the perceived heat much much higher yeah. my highest temperature was I had had a really rotten job running the first online casting agency in, in Hollywood Oh wait 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 year. hold
0: on I've never knew this Yeah Tell me about that. Hold on before we get before we get to the story. Tell me about that. What the the first online casting?
2: Yeah, so this is back in the '90s, and I didn't start the company. I was brought in to run it for a period of time, okay. and uh, I just I couldn't I couldn't get it to work. But it was you know at that point agents if you, if you were an actor, your agent would send out your headshot for every submission. So they'd take a photograph, and stick it in the mail, and put a stamp on it, in your resume, and send it out to. A casting director who would then decide, you know, they'd, they'd literally throw the pictures on the ground and say, okay, I like that one and that one and that one. Let's bring them in. So we had all these pictures online, but this was on the internet. It was still pretty wobbly. So we had to set up frame relay service to every casting office that we signed up, which is very expensive, buy them printers, buy them ink. So rather than looking at the stuff online, they insisted on printing them out because that's how they worked. So they print the pictures. So we were paying all that, just losing money hand over fist. And by the time I'd done that for a little under a year, I thought uh, I need a vacation where I'm not going to be around any people, especially not Hollywood people. Yeah. So in July, I headed for Death Valley, and I had a Chevy Blazer and you know spare gas and water and all that. And the day I got there, it was 122. Jeez. <laughs> and, you know, you get out of the car, which is air conditioned. You hope. And you stand there, and your skin just begins to sting. Now, it's dry, but it's still really hot. And I think it got down to 99 overnight. I was sleeping on a picnic table. Oh, my God. So it was an adventure. You know, it's kind of like those people that go around whipping themselves in the back to sort of... Yeah, I was going to say, was
0: was was this just like, did you purposely want to self-torture? Is that that the (laughs) the thing, man?
2: I'm still not sure. No, I think it was just... I was pissed, and I wanted to go somewhere where I knew I would be complete, completely isolated. <laughs> Little did I realize all I had to do was buy a boat, right? Right. So the there you go. Yeah. week. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, it was so hot that even the critters weren't coming out. So it was, it was kind of interesting. So when I saw 130, I thought, oof, that's like coming right up on the edge of extinction temperature, you know, yeah. and that's scary.
0: Yeah, it is. and uh, and, not, and so... What was the uh, – there was another thing that happened in L.A. There was the uh, the fire NATO. You know, I
2: just saw the littlest bit on that. Yeah, it was kind of a, one of those little local – it wasn't very big, but it was, it was all this hot air of the fire interacting with the hot air in the atmosphere, and it caused this little cyclonic thing. Yeah. I don't know much more about it, but, you know, we're definitely afraid of fire there. Not where I live normally, because – we're down the flatland, so it's got a. Right. You know, fires don't have a big a chance in the bigger part of L.A. because you got to burn through too much concrete. But I'm up fairly close to the mountains, and those catch about every ten years. So when those go up, it's pretty scary. But you know, all I could think of when I read the story was, you know, Venus is looking better all the time. It's only <laughs> nine hundred degrees on the surface, about a thousand times the atmospheric pressure of Earth. But uh, we're getting closer, and a lot of people have said in very broad terms, you know, look, guys, here's an example of climate change run amok. We don't want to go there, but we're seeing the beginnings of it. And as you know, I'm sure you you cover these stories all the time. You know, there's a lot of people that feel we're right on that tipping point of making a big difference. And we saw a little dip in uh, uh, carbon emissions over the course of the pandemic which gave people hope, saying, look, we can do it. But it's a tiny percentage of what we have to do over a long period of time. Yeah, And so it's really, it's very sobering to see this. And so this is just the the tip of the spear, I think, for hot temperatures. I did read somewhere that in parts of, of uh, Saudi Arabia and, and areas around there in the Middle East, they're expecting by mid-century that it'll be up in the, I think, the 140s. Oh, my God. Which means everybody's going to have to just be inside all the time. And now you're burning more fossil fuel for air conditioning and all that. It's just it's gonna be a nightmare. So yeah, we've got to get a handle on it.
0: Something's gotta be done. Something's gotta be done. I was yeah. watching um, I was watching our local news here and we have a we have probably the greatest weather uh, the greatest weather man on the planet uh, here in Chicago. His name is Tom Skilling. And he works for he works for us. He works for WGN and we're at Channel Nine. And uh, he is, the, without question, the best meteorologist uh, on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. And he always huh. loves to do, like, worldwide stories as well. And so I was looking, I was watching the news here in the uh, in the studio, and I was uh, looking at the screen, and he showed a map of the United States and um, all of the heat advisories and warnings on the West Coast. And it looked like half of, uh, uh, you know, like almost all of the West Coast is under some sort of crazy heat advisory.
4: Yeah
2: and and you know there's another space angle to this story and and this is something that's of great interest to the National Space Society and we've been pushing it for a long time is there's the studies done on alternative power sources and of course we know there's wind and solar and so forth right we we've been counting on solar quite a bit in California but we're having rolling outages now because of course at night solar doesn't work so when we have these hot nights where people are still running air conditioning we have to have rolling blackouts because the, the solar percentage of that power is not happening. Right. So one of the things that the society has been pushing for a long time, and and people have studied it since the 70s, and it's, it's very viable, is space solar power. We've talked about it before. You put these big platforms up in orbit. They intercept rays from the sun 24-7 and then beam them down to Earth. Now, you have there are issues to work out. How are you going to beam it down? You don't want airplanes flying through these microwave beams or however they're getting the energy back down. Right. And you, you want it to go where you want it to go, not in somebody's backyard. But it, it in theory, it's very doable. And now that we know there's materials out there that we can use so we don't have to launch all the mass, as long as you can manufacture these things in orbit, parts of them anyway, the heavy parts, it makes a lot of sense. And now you're cutting down your dependence on fossil fuels by a huge margin, possibly to zero. So it, it, it's a, a big story that doesn't get enough coverage. U.S. was really big into this in the 70s and 80s, then kind of backed off. said now this is too much for the kind of budget we can put into it. But Japan and then, interestingly, China in the last 10 years have really picked up on this and are running fast with it. So somebody's going to do it. Yeah,
0: okay. All right, Rod, hang on, Okay. You bet. All right. Rod Pyle is with us, author, journalist, editor in chief of Ad Astra magazine, space expert. And if you have any uh, questions uh, or comments about uh, space related issues, it's 312 981 7200. 312 981 7200. Nick DiGilio show continues. <laughs> Love the Dan. Gotta love the Dan. Uh, Nick Degilio here on 720 WGN, live in the Skyline studio here on uh, WGN. Uh, classic comedy Carson clips that we always play. There's some alliteration for you right there. Uh, Johnny Carson show, you can watch it every night on Antenna TV, and we're going to find out if Elvis is really alive in Bismarck. That's what's coming up later. We're going to talk about things that make you weird anywhere but Chicago weird traditions across America, and some unbelievable weather records, which we were just talking about, 130 degrees in Death Valley. Rod Pyle is with us. If you would like to join us with any space-related questions or comments, it's 312-981-7200. And let's uh, get Rod back in here. Hi, Rod.
2: Hey, and speaking of antenna TV. Yeah. I I just discovered it in the last month because I get nothing but over-the-air broadcast on this boat. So I, I made the delightful discovery of Antenna and Me TV, and I've been reliving my childhood every night, one right. episode at a the time.
0: There you go. Yeah, Antenna TV. Is, pretty cool. Antenna TV is awesome. It is. It is great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the uh, Ingenuity Mars Helicopter.
2: Yeah. So this is a project I actually uh, learned about it in 2015. I went to a, a press conference uh, event that was being held at Caltech for JPL because they're associated. And we got this great presentation from Mimi Ong, who at that point was the woman who was behind uh, putting that program together. And at, at that time, it was very aspirational. They didn't have a ride. They didn't have a budget. They didn't have anything. But they have been working on it in fits and starts. And it was really exciting, this idea of, you know, having the first machine that would fly on another planet. And the idea is, you know, the great thing about a helicopter, besides being able to just explore more quickly and, and in some ways more effectively at least, in the, in the earliest part of your investigation with something that can leave the ground. It can also fly ahead of the rover and help talk to the rover and chart out where it's going to go. So eventually the idea is this thing would go up, fly for as long as it can fly with the battery charge. You know, it'll get better over time. Now I think the flights are going to be about three minutes to hop. But go up, really scout ahead, see where there's ravines and boulders and sand traps and that kind of stuff. And tell the rover, and directly with the AI improving all the time, the rover can make decisions and say, okay, I'm going to not go there, but I will go there because that's relatively flat and safe, and so it gets me where I want to go. So I, I was writing that story up, and as I was leaving the auditorium, I got stopped by one of the officials, and they said, uh, you, you can't file the story. I said, what are you talking about? You guys invited us here. They said, yeah, we had a problem, so you got to hold on it. So I did some investigating because I was, you know, a reporter on that. And it turned out it hadn't actually been cleared for release yet, so we had to sit on it for something like four months. But um, yeah, it finally got a billet. So now it's on the Curiosity rover, headed for Mars. It's slung, I think, out of the bottom of it. And once the rover lands, assuming all goes well, that thing will be deployed, and it will make, I think, up to five. They're they're asked They're hoping for at least five flights, but you know how it is at NASA and Jet Propulsion Laboratory. These things usually do better than they plan. So the first flight it will run off of the charge and the batteries that it gets from the rover, which is why it was in the news this week, because they just did their first charge charging cycle to make sure everything was working fine and it all checked out, which is great news. And then it's got a little solar panel on top, so it's got two contour-rotating propellers about three or four feet across, and then this round solar panel atop those, and uh, it'll charge in between flights and communicate directly with the rover. It doesn't even have to talk back to Earth. So wow. So we're really looking forward to that. That's pretty so cool. That, you know, that's one really cool part of the mission, and the other really cool part of this mission is this rover has three microphones, so we're going to hear what re- what entry sounds like going through the atmosphere, and then we're going to be able to listen to Mars when once they're on the surface and hear what Mars sounds like. Now, it, there's good scientific reasons for that, but also, what great PR to be able to tune to WMARS, you know, and, and hear what <laughs> Mars sounds like, and I think given day or night is really
0: neat. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Now here's a here's a just a, a you know basic question. These machines that that the that, that NASA is going to be sending out, you know, to Mars. You've got your rovers and you've got your helicopters and stuff like that. The designers here on Earth, um, you know, because of the atmosphere and what's going on on Mars, what kind of changes and what kind of concessions and changes do they have to make for these for this equipment to work? You know, in, under those yeah. you know, conditions,
2: it's really tough and and. You know, you normally you, you can't just take electronic components and, and even mechanical components off the shelf and use them, because in the case of mechanical components, they're, they're probably not optimized for weight versus strength properly, so you tend to build these things custom. Yeah, Electronic chips, you'd think, well, why not? Now, the Mars Helicopter, interestingly, uses a Qualcomm Snapdragon cell phone chip for its computer. And they're able to do that with a little bit of shielding because it's not expected to last that long. For the rovers, which can go on, as we've seen, for 10, 15 years like uh, Opportunity did, you need something a little more robust, so they have to use these radiation-hardened chips, which the military designed for, you know what, surviving nuclear war. So they're about half a million dollars apiece, and they're always about 7 to 10 years out of date because they don't update these things very frequently because it's expensive. But, um, yeah, you do have to customize everything. And, in fact, I think I may have told you this once before, but I was interviewing one of the guys from the Voyager project, and they realized even though those are fairly primitive uh, computing components, they they needed to shield the transistors and other components in in the spacecraft and the wiring because the wiring sailing through space would actually build up a static charge and short out and all this. So at the 11th hour... They simply went down to the local Ralphs, bought some Reynolds wrap, and wrapped everything in that. Oh,
0: come on, really?
2: <laughs> I thought it was really cool. Yeah, the wiring, anyway. The, <laughs> the electronics, they actually made little titanium hats that sat over them to shield them. But for the wiring, he said, yeah, we just got some aluminum foil, and look, we were done. And I thought, you know, that's how it's done. Yeah. You just grab what you need to grab and get it done. I thought that was really neat.
0: Now, so back in the day, was it just basically when they were sending things off, uh, was it just basically trial and error? It's was like, okay, well, let's see what happens.
2: It was an informed trial and error. I mean, early on in the 50s, it really was, because the U.S. was doing this. We were always kind of behind the Soviet Union. But that's because the Soviet Union would just think up something, build it, and hurl it out there. I'm simplifying a bit. But they were launching many of these things per year at a time when we were trying to get ready to send up one or two. Right. So the U.S. was a little more careful. Our rockets were smaller, so we had to make everything lighter. But that forced them to be a little more ingenious, I think. In the Soviet Union, they had these enormous rockets, and they'd cobbled together these lunar orbiters and probes that looked like, you know, some kind of a a deformed car. I mean, they were big and heavy and pressurized because they didn't have the electronics strong enough to withstand a vacuum like the American ones had to because they they didn't have enough boosting power. So, yeah, it was really kind of trial and error until they began to get some designs that really started to make sense, and that probably happened in the early mid-60s. They began... You saw both the the Russians and the Americans with with the Venera, in Russia's case, the Venera Venus probes, or with the Americans, the Mariners probes that went to Mars and other other places. Um, kind of a standardized design because if it worked a couple of times, that's good enough. Let's keep
0: doing that. Yeah. Do they have a, a lot of people who work on the designs? Is there like a, is it a, is it a large uh, uh, crew that 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 does this?
2: Yeah, because they distribute the work. So, you know, everybody specializes. Somebody will work on, you know, what, what kind of metals are we going to use and structure designs for the truss that holds what they call the main bus, of the spacecraft, the frame, if you will. And nowadays, interestingly, they're actually experimenting with beginning to integrate functions of the spacecraft into that. So it's not just a dead metal body. It actually has the electronics in it and some active cooling and all kinds of stuff. So that'll that'll save a lot of weight. And another team will be working on how do you attach the circuit boards to that. Another team will be working on the circuit boards themselves. Yeah. Then there's programming teams and temperature control teams and people designing the trajectories. So it takes a big big crowd of people to do this. And they're not all at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and they're not, not all at NASA. A lot of them are at universities and in companies and universities overseas. So it really is kind of a big global effort.
0: Wow. Um, so when is this Ingenuity g- g- supposed to actually get to Mars?
2: So the rover itself, uh, Perseverance, will land <coughs> Excuse me, in February of 2021. And uh, the helicopter should deploy, I think I read, within about a week. So, you know, once it's down, they got to check everything out, make sure it's rolling properly, make sure the instrumentation's working, make sure they're... Transmit and receive capability is what they want it to be, and all that, and then they can signal the helicopter to start its first hop. And once it's separated from the rover, it never comes home because it's got its own charging system. So it's just off doing its own thing. It'll stay fairly close because it doesn't have a powerful radio, but it doesn't have to redock with the rover. It just goes off like a like a puppy and flies and does its thing, which is which is very cool, I think.
0: And uh, how long does this thing going to be flying around? Do they do they have a, a timetable on that?
2: I think it's up to five flights of up to three to four minutes apiece, and and they you know these things are always subject to change depending on how everything performs. It may do better than they expect. We've never flown on Mars before, and the atmosphere is so thin that this is the equivalent of flying a traditional helicopter at a hundred thousand feet on Earth, which would be quite a challenge. You can imagine yeah. cause there is isn't much air there, so um, it's very experimental. It's been tested in vacuum chambers, so they know that it, it has the ability to generate enough lift will it be able to land successfully every time and manage to come down without putting got four little legs on it you know if one of them gets onto a rock or a crevice it could be a problem because the thing could be too tilted that the blades can't swing freely so there's a lot of unknowns but even if we get one flight out of it at least it's proof of the engineering it doesn't carry much beyond a camera and a radio because it is an experiment yeah but that's kind of the beauty of it you know it's very very lean and elegant and simple and therefore i think more likely to work
0: Any hunches on what Mars is going to sound like?
2: Well, the best guesses I've gotten from people is that because the atmosphere is so thin, there isn't a lot of transmission of sound, so the the wavelengths are going to be something we're not really used to in terms of of the full range of highs and lows we can hear on Earth. So it'll probably be kind of crackly sounding and thin, but um, I really don't know. You know, I've been waiting for this for a long time. I I wanted to do it with the Viking landers in the 70s, but... They didn't ask me, so I didn't get to weigh in (laughs) my opinion because I was a young man. And I had no clue as to how it would work. But now that they're doing it, they did try once before with the lander that crashed. And there was something on one of the other ones. I think it was, uh, shoot, it was one of the landers a few years ago where they were able to, it might have been Phoenix, the uh, polar lander, where they were able to actually take some, they were recording Oh, no, sorry. It was the recent one—the uh, uh, Insight Lander—that's a seismology uh, machine, and they were able to interpolate some of the seismology readings of the wind blowing across the frame of the thing to uh, sort of uh, simulate what that would sound like. But it still isn't a microphone, so this is this is really a first, and it's just great. Yeah, it's great theater, you know. Yeah,
0: and now and again, you know, a lot of these missions that are happening right now. Uh, People can follow along, uh, you know, online, correct? Yeah.
2: You just go to the JPL website, just Google JPL.NASA.gov, and it's got the best website of all the field centers. I think that's beyond argument at this point. They've always, since the 90s, they've they've been the lead because they just, they spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, how do we best communicate with the public? Because they don't get a lot of money. They get a pretty small percentage of the NASA budget, so they've got to get the word out there on the great work they're doing. And there will be all kinds of coverage on that. And then, of course, Space.com, who I work with quite a bit, has everything up to the minute. So if you want something that's really up to date, it's it's kind of a question mark whether it will come out on NASA's site first or on Space.com, because those guys really know their business.
0: All right. Everybody check out Space.com. Uh, Rod, hang on. You bet. All right. Rod Pyle is with us. Uh, always uh, fascinating and fun to talk with, Rod Uh, author, journalist, editor-in-chief of Ad Astra Magazine. If you want to talk space, questions, comments, Mm 312-981-7200. Nick DiGilio here on 720 WGN. How you doing? We are live in the Skyline Studio, 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago. We're here till 4 o'clock, keeping you company and keeping you informed. Uh, And then uh, at 4 o'clock, we head over to Bradley Place to the TV side of WGN, get some early morning news from that great team. And then the great Bob Surratt at 5 o'clock has your morning drive. Uh, Also coming up, the news from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. Our guest is our good friend Rod Pyle, author, journalist, editor in chief at Ad Astra Magazine, and space expert. And if you have any space questions or comments, it's three one two nine eight one seven two hundred. Hello, Rod. Hello. Uh, so someone called in, couldn't hang on, uh, but wanted to know what you think is the most uh, accurate space movie. And you've worked on a bunch you've worked on a bunch of T V shows and movies and things like that as well.
2: Yeah. What do they have to do with this time of night that they couldn't wait i don't know curious yeah Uh, yeah okay well it might have been something more fun than this so i I can't hold them hold them accountable for that um gosh you know i think probably still 2001 a space odyssey i mean that movie i saw it at theater probably 15 years ago and i thought dang this thing holds up so well yeah i mean even for 1968 the visual effects Wow, I yeah. mean, they're still just spectacular, and they're very carefully done, so you don't notice that the, the you know the big shots are all right to left and all that. And of course, you know, in cinemascope, it was great to see or whatever format they were using. But um, right up until the end, and I saw that movie as a kid. You know, we had sent away for tickets in advance and got the little kits they were selling through Life Magazine that you could buy your 2001 Space Odyssey kit and all that. And my dad took me, and I was so excited because this is going to be the first. I mean, this was really the first serious attempt at a picture that was going to be dead dead to rights accurate science and everything was going great until that that last 20 <laughs> percent of the movie And i thought i don't know much about lsd but i think this director's ingested a lot of it because this is really weird so well, I, I later read the story and kind of figured out what he was trying to say but i sure didn't get it then
0: i'll tell you what rod my, one of my favorite stories that concerns you know uh the initial release of 2001 is that people would go see 2001 and they would drop acid? Um, oh, they would drop acid and and you know right around the time when they knew it would kick in during the last 15 minutes, and right. then, and then they would go down and this is this was happening all over the country. They would go down to the uh, the uh, front of the auditorium and they would lay on their backs in front of the screen and watch the last 15 minutes tripping. That's a little twisted. Yeah, it is. It is, but it was the late sixties, so Now not that many years later I was working up at the
2: Griffith Observatory and we had the show called Lasarium. Did you ever see that?
0: No, I haven't.
2: So Lasarium was you know, always it was done in planetarium domes in this curved ceiling. which had the starry background up there, and you have four primary colors of laser light basically making spirograph patterns on the ceiling oh, to boy. rock and roll music. Yeah, okay. And, and I didn't, I didn't really understand the appeal. You know, I thought, this is really elementary. But we packed that place three times a night. I think 600 people per viewing or something. Jeez. And every year, every summer, this would come along. And, and whatever the drug du jour was, whether it was <laughs> PCP, sometimes it was acid, sometimes it was just pot. Sometimes they were drunk. But there were a couple of years when people were taking PCP, which made them not only crazy, but very strong. And we didn't have security people. It was Ooh. us us pencil-neck science guys trying to wrestle these people off the seats they were standing on, screaming, you know, come to me,
0: I am your savior, and all that. And it
2: was quite colorful. Oh, I bet. But that show made a lot of money and was quite successful for about 10 years.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Jeez. Uh, Okay, uh, we got a couple people on the line. Here's Bruce on WGN. Go go ahead, Bruce. Hi. Um, In some movies, I've noticed that they had
7: uh, ships traveling through space with crews and part of the ship would rotate around, creating artificial gravity. Is that really a feasible right. possibility?
2: Yeah, and as far as we know, it's the only way to do it. I mean, as as Nick pointed out, I, I worked on on some shows in the past, Star Trek and a couple of others, and of course, you know, because you're shooting on studio, the easiest thing to do is just say, okay, push the gravity button, and now everybody's standing up on the on the deck floor, you know. Um, unfortunately we don't know how to do that. The only way we do know how to generate something that approaches gravity is to spin something around and use centrifugal force. And you've got to worry about a lot of things. You know, you've got to worry about the motor that's going to be causing that unit to spin and how you're going to build bearings that will survive in space for months at a time, and not freeze up and not wear out. You've got to worry about the diameter of that spinning vessel. Cause if it isn't wide enough in diameter, um, if your head's spinning at too much of a different rate than your feet, you can start experiencing vertigo. So there's a lot going into it. We really, we being the space geeks, really wish that they'd try it pretty soon so we'd get an idea of how effective it's going to be. Because if you're going to stay in space a long time, you don't want to be weightless. It's really hard in the body. So there's been a lot more work with the space station, for instance, where everybody's weightless all the time. Um, there's been a lot of work put into trying various things I mean, they're looking at pharmaceuticals they're looking at uh, they each astronaut has to do i think two hours of strenuous exercise a day to keep their muscle mass and their bone density up so it's a big problem but yeah that's probably the way we're gonna we're gonna go
0: about it so that seems like uh you know in in some of these movies it's it, it is the most accurate idea
2: Yeah. And again, going back to 2001, they built that amazing rotating set with that incredible shot of Gary Lockwood jogging along in that thing with the camera tracking ahead of him. I mean, that was really forward looking for that time. And I I was just amazed. And I thought, that's it. That's how it's going to happen. But you got to launch a lot of mass to do it. So that's one of the reasons it hasn't happened yet. It's heavy. Yeah.
0: Hey Bruce, thank you for the call. We really appreciate it. 312-981-7200. Speaking of two thousand one, what about the food scenes? There's a lot of eating in two thousand one.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you remember when uh, Doctor um, what's his name? Not Doctor Forrester. That's War of the Worlds. Anyway, the guy's traveling from Earth orbit to the moon. Mm-hmm. He's sipping on his little food, gooey food pack. Right. And uh, I, I didn't notice it as a kid, but I noticed it later. I don't remember which one of those. I think he had three little straws. He pulled out. He sips one. And then he takes his mouth away from it, and the food goes back down the tube. (laughs) And you're thinking, oh, that was filmed in a gravity environment. But I guess you could argue that, you know, the pack was vacuum sealed, and it sucked it back down or something. So I don't hold that against them. But, yeah, yeah, that was not very appetizing-looking. But, you know, for a while, we'll probably be doing things like that until we figure out how to actually either manufacture or grow food or both wherever we're going to be living.
0: Yeah. It's just funny. I mean, I just, you know, I've seen 2001 many times and I was like, man, you know, there's a lot of eating in this movie. It's just like sort of, (laughs) you know, like really lots of like, you know, what would be considered really mundane things, but it's fascinating to watch in this movie.
2: You know, yeah, right up until the point that I felt like I had to spend fifteen minutes watching that guy eat a poached egg. Right. I mean,
0: really, yeah,
2: why was that so long? And the clinking of the silverware and right. all that white stuff, and then it takes him another three minutes to turn around and look behind him, where right. he's standing behind himself. And I, <laughs> yeah, great right. filmmaking, but just weird.
0: It, it's, a, it, it's strange, but it's, it's. I love that movie though. So, uh, all right, here's James on WG, and go ahead, James.
2: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Hey, real yeah. Cu- curious question for you. Remember the Red Bull guy that jumped out of the balloon? Yeah. How close was he to being lost in space? Uh, not very. He was way up in the upper stratosphere. So, you know, a balloon can't leave the atmosphere by its very nature because it's buoyant. In, it's got to be in something to be buoyant. So you can't really do that in space. So he's got to be in the atmosphere. So that's nowhere close to orbit. But it was sure a long fall, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: All right, James, thanks for the call. Uh, Remind us that story, Rod. Well, I'm
2: trying to remember the details because I always get mixed up with the guy who did it back in the 60s. But uh, whatever his name was, went up in this this vessel, you know, this container, this capsule, really, to, I don't know, it was 120,000 feet or something. I mean, it was way, way, way up there. And then comes that point where you just got to step out. And you're in free fall for many, many minutes. And, um, you know, er, er, when they first did it, the question was, could somebody even survive? So that was the amazing thing, that, that there was a guy willing to take that chance. By the time the Red Bull thing went, it was just a record-breaking uh, kind of endeavor. But, uh, yeah, that you can imagine. I mean, free fall is one thing if you're in orbit, in a spacecraft, protected from everything. But this is just out of the air. So yeah. it's more like what, what the rovers go through when they're doing atmospheric entry at Mars, you know, without the heat shield part. So that that every time I, I see any of the footage from that, it kind of makes the lower part of my body jam up
0: in the upper part of my body, if you know what I mean. I understand.
2: It's like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon kind of going,
0: uh, no, I'm back yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. And so what did Red Bull have to do with it? They were the sponsor. They oh, they sp- the Red Bull sponsored this? Yeah,
2: it was, it was it was not a cheap endeavor. It, it was well into the tens of millions of dollars, I think, by the time they did it. So Jeez. it wasn't a passive thing. But, I mean, look at the publicity they got. It's yeah. incredible. So, of course, you know, now that brings up, if, if that's cool, imagine, and I'm glad they haven't done it yet, but it, it's just a question of time if somebody doesn't pass a law against it before Coca-Cola or Nike put up some big, you know, a, a disc-shaped Mylar screen in orbit that has their logo on it and is backlit by the sun or lit by our, by LEDs or something. <laughs> right, and we got to look up at the sky and see an ad every night. And we already are going to be looking up and seeing Elon's Starlink satellites right. roving around up there. But right. please, no advertising.
0: And also, do you remember
2: the 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 Rolling Rock moonvertising ad campaign they did years ago?
0: I did. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. We talked about it. We talked, really it. we talked. We talked about it on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And I remember seeing the first ad for it thinking, wait, is, is that real? <laughs> Can that work? Yeah. I had to really think about it.
0: Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's the idea of using space and, you know, looking up at the sky. I just keep, I keep, I keep waiting to see the bat signal. That's the uh, – <laughs> <laughs> at some point.
2: doubt <laughs> now- that would at least be cool. Yeah, you know, that's way better than seeing the Coke or Pepsi logo yeah. up there. I would love. Can you imagine just doing that as a stunt?
0: Yeah, just somebody just doing the bat signal, uh, which which would be pretty cool. Very very cool. I
2: mean, okay. I mean, the one thing that wouldn't bother me that has been experimented with, although I haven't heard much about it in the last two years, was that uh, thing we talked about it a while back. The Japanese set up a satellite that was filled with ball bearings.
0: Right. Okay, hang on, Todd, uh, Ron, order- hang on, Todd. Ron, hang on. Rod, hang on, we gotta hit the news. So hold on a second. We'll finish that thought in more space conversation with Rod.
4: Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me, my lover stands on golden stairs. And watches the ships that go sailing All right. Somewhere.
0: Hello, good morning. Nick DiGiulio here on 720 WGN. We're live in the Skyline Studio, 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago. Here till 4 o'clock. It's a Tuesday morning. Coming up after 2.30, we always play the Carson Comedy Classics right here on 720 WGN on the Nick DiGilio Show. You can watch the Johnny Carson Show every night on Antenna TV. And uh, we're going to be playing a clip of Elvis found alive in Bismarck. (laughs) We're also going to talk about things that make you weird anywhere but Chicago. Some Chicagoisms and weird traditions across America and some unbelievable weather uh, records. 312-981-7200. 312 981 7200. That's our number. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Rod Pyle, author, journalist, editor in chief at Ad Astra Magazine and space expert, is with us. If you would like to join us with a question or a comment about space related issues, 312
2: 981 7200. Hello, Rod. Hey, so I got a follow up on that Red Bull thing. Oh, okay. It was 127 plus thousand feet, which is 24 miles which is a little over a third of the way to what is officially space, so pretty high. And he free fell for over four minutes before opening his parachute.
0: Oh, my God.
2: Four yeah. minutes? He, he exceeded the, the uh, speed of sound coming down. So he actually was the first human being to break the sound barrier while not under power. And it was the first time that record had been broken since 1960. And I was trying to remember the name of the guy from 1960. It was Colonel Joseph Kittinger, who, as it turned out, ended up being the Capcom or the Red Bull guy uh, when, when he did his jump, Felix Baumgartner. So that was a pretty amazing—it was a nice circle to have the the first guy to do it. Talk to the last guy that that did it over the radio, but yeah, that's that's a long free fall. Man, I mean, you oh can man. practically have lunch. I mean, yeah. my
0: God, four minutes! I can't even imagine yeah. this. That's nuts. That is absolutely nuts. Yeah. I mean, was he okay, like physically? Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right. I mean, he was in a pressure suit, so you know he was he was he was fine. But you got to wonder what it do to your brain. Exactly. I mean, somewhere free- in the middle of that, you're thinking. I, I can't go
0: back.
2: <laughs> he's probably fine, but he's going his all his way pants. down.
0: Yeah, I can't even imagine yeah. that. I, that's just absolutely nuts. Okay, you yeah, went right. Mach one point two five. Well, you see, that's what that's what happens when you drink Red Bull. That's what that's. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: It gives you wings.
0: It gives you wings, object. man. It certainly does give you wings. I can. T- <laughs> oh. <laughs> imagine if we started drinking Red Bull. What could we achieve? Oh man, I could fly. Well, but you're going to mix it with vodka. I know. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. You know. Thanks, man. That's,
2: yeah, that's a uh, whole different evening.
0: Um. So, uh So SpaceX is ramping up the Starship prototype tests here in tech, out there in Texas. Tell me about that.
2: So uh, there's this uh, series of vehicles that they've used, uh, which are referred to as Starhoppers, and it's the um, they're they're basically test versions of what will eventually become Starship. So they were up to Starhopper Five, and as you saw, if you've been looking at the news, number of them had exploded and crumpled and yeah. failed in one way or another. Yeah. Uh, last week they finally got one to fly. It, it only went up to about 500 feet, which was the plan on a single engine, and it looked like a grain silo. And it's not that you know when he started this thing, looked like a moon rocket from the 50s, which is very cool. That got uh, damaged in a windstorm because these are just very thin stainless steel. Test bed, they're yeah. not fully worked out. Yeah. So um, he said, "Okay, let's just build it like like a tank, you know, a tank with legs." So this one flew, got to the atmosphere it was supposed to. So they're saying they think probably before it's reconditioned to fly again because it suffered a little damage on landing. Nothing, nothing bad. Legs and so forth got bent up. Um, they think that SN six, which is you know the, the sixth iteration of this will probably be going up to possibly as high as 12 miles and then one or two flights after that into orbit, so maybe within a year and a half. So he's behind schedule, which is what we expect from from Musk. I mean, he, he is usually later in delivering than he aspires to, but he also admits his schedules are aspirational, and he does it. And he really does this iterate fast and fail forward thing, which I love, which is, look, there aren't people on these things, they're machines. So rather than spending three times the money and time on the ground trying to make sure everything's perfect, like we were talking about earlier with the Soviet Union, let's just build it and try. Yeah. So it, it's a huge development. He's so confident but he's now hiring designers to start working on his floating spaceports, which are going to go out to sea and launch and recover from there, some of them anyway. And he's advertising for resort, high-end
0: resort manager, quote-unquote. Yeah, this to me me is hilarious. (laughs) It's
2: hilarious. I thought it was designed, the the floating spaceports, but it's to design a, a starship village in Boca Chica, Texas. And if you've ever been to that part of Texas, you know, just a resort's not going to do it, because it's still that part of Texas. I mean, no slam on Boca Chica, but there's a reason that they're able to fly rockets out of there, because there ain't much there except dirt and scrub. But, uh, yeah, so I, I thought that was pretty pretty ambitious of them. And what did you say? We want to make it super fun.
0: Yeah, I saw Musk. that quote. I saw that quote. <laughs> Elon Musk tweeted out, we want to make it super fun. I but, love you know,
2: that. I mean, he's really he's leading the charge on this stuff, and he's so far out ahead of everybody and I didn't realize until so my son told me today. He's now, I guess, the fourth wealthiest person in the world after Bezos, um, Warren Buffett, and uh, uh, Bill Gates. Yeah. So now that's, you know net worth, assuming he sold everything. But but you can imagine with that kind of money and that kind of power, why not have your own space program? It would be the coolest thing in the world.
0: Yeah. I, I also love I love the I love the the name Starhopper. I think that's I think that's yeah. pretty cool. They, uh, yeah, I think that would be a good name for a movie, don't you think? Star Hoppers. I I like it.
2: I, there was a, a friend of mine named Dan Dor out in uh up in uh Canada who did a series called Star Hunters. It kind of reminded me of that. But um yeah, Starship I thought was a little less inspired than Star Hopper. You know, I'd yeah. like to see him come up with another name for that, but it's changed so many times already. I think that's the the third or fourth name they've had for well, it. to just stick with whenever that. Whenever
0: I hear the word Starship, I don't think of the band. I think of Starship Troopers. I think of the movie Starship Troopers with the big giant oh, bugs. Wait. Wait. Did you love Starship <laughs> oh, Troopers? Oh, I love Starship Troopers. Now. Oh, I love it. Oh, no. Oh, How I do you it? not like Starship Troopers, Rod? Probably because you read the okay. book. Did you read the book? So, yeah so, Okay. Anyway, so that's I read it. the book, so I realized <laughs>
2: that, that was a political story, you right. know, not a war tale. Yeah. But... So why do we travel all the way out to this planet where the bugs are invading, and then shoot at them with something equivalent of an M sixteen
0: <laughs> when we can
2: just nuke them from orbit where we can be sure? Right. Right.
0: It's called I mean, an allegory rod.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I love okay, that movie. How about? Uh, okay, wait. How about Battle L A. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. Okay, because to me that was kind of the same thing.
0: Uh, uh, no, yeah. Now Starship Trooper. The thing about Starship Trooper is. <laughs> Is that it's it's a completely insane movie and it's hilarious and yeah, and and uh, it is. and I I just find it massively entertaining. Now now, well, cri- the can I, can I, now part was great. Yeah, I mean well, it's not Heinlein. There's no quite there's no que- no question about yeah. it. And fans of Heinlein probably saw the movie and went, "What is this?" And I think that might be true. I think that might be true of almost every Heinlein adaptation. You know, to film uh, has always been a little bit screwy. So, but anyway,
2: yeah, I think the closest we came was with some of those those early to mid fifties films, Uh, Destination Moon. That was one of his, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was his, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: I mean, you still had the goofy
2: mechanic with the wrench in his pocket, right? Of course, along in the rocket. If I'm keeping my films right, yeah. But but beyond that, it was pretty darn close, yeah, and and a little rigorous to watch for that reason, yeah. So yeah, I give you the Starship Troop. The humor was great. I just thought that. I was kind of expecting it to be more like the book, and yeah, I thought it was. Well, where are you guys going? No, it's with not. This? It's You're not even. Just,
0: it's not even remotely. Like, off, it's not even remotely like the book. So, all right, yeah. Rod, hang out, okay? Okay. We always love to bring up uh, science fiction movies when Rod is here. He worked on science fiction. You love. You gotta love Starship Troopers, right, Tom? Well, yeah, because Robert A. Highland was a fascist, and then Paul Verhoeven wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but I say I, my my favorite is when Doogie Howser uh, puts his hand on the bug at, near the end of the movie, and he goes. It's afraid! <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie, man. All right, let's take a quick break here. It's Nick DeJilio on WGN. <laughs> Right. Hey, it's Nick Degilio on 720 WGN. We're live in the Skyline Studio, 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago. It's a Tuesday morning. Hello. If you would like to join us, we would love to hear from you. 312-981-7200. Um, and uh, if uh, you have a comment or a question regarding space or space issues... We want to hear from you. 312 981 7200. Rod Pyle, author, journalist, editor in chief of Ad Astra magazine, space expert, uh, joins us once a month to talk space and have some fun. 312 981 7200. Hello, Rod. Hello. All right. What about this uh, story about uh, Rocket Lab uh, to launch a private Venus mission?
2: That's pretty cool. So, Rocket Lab is a small company out of New Zealand that also is now co, co- located in the U.S. and Southern California. And uh, they've been working for you know, a decade, maybe a little longer, on building. They want to capture a niche market, so they're building smaller rockets, about just under 60 feet tall, that will launch small payloads. So they, they're not trying to compete with SpaceX. They're yeah. they're launching you know, smaller satellites and so forth. So uh, one of the founders, Peter Beck, just flat-said, I'm madly in love with Venus, which is a pretty small club, once you realize what Venus is really like. <laughs> and he decided he wanted to send his own mission up there. So he's building something, I think, a little bigger than a CubeSat, but not very large. A small satellite, uh, excuse me, a small rover that would, would actually go and then evaluate. And I, I don't know, there wasn't a lot of detail whether it's going to enter the atmosphere or not. I, I suspect it's got a drop probe or it's designed to do it as a complete unit. To investigate the upper atmosphere of Venus, which we think, while the planet is, is horrible, as I mentioned earlier, it's uh, approaching 900 degrees Fahrenheit and you know 92 times the, ap- the atmospheric pressure of Earth and so forth on the surface with acid rain and all this. Up in the clouds, it's relatively temperate, and the atmospheric pressure is close to what we're familiar with. So there's there's a body of, of hypothesis that you could build, or uh, theory, that you could build these floating colonies up there or at least research stations would basically be big balloons that could be filled with regular atmospheric air from earth and still be buoyant because of the, of the atmosphere in Venus. And um, so he wants to investigate. And there's also some that think that there could be life in that upper region, of the atmosphere, the surface is probably too toxic, but it's mostly carbon dioxide. uh, And when you get up that high, there, there are. There's good argument to be made that it could possibly support civil forms of life. So that's kind of what he's interested in.
0: And so we're. And you know, so this is out of New Zealand. And but you said there's also a, a part of this is in Southern California as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. So they they knew they're going to have to come. You know, have have part of their company operating in the U.S. to be able to capture the the primary market. So it made sense for them to co-locate here. And yeah, they've had some successes. And as I said, it's a smaller rocket, but it's it's. Very robust and it's approaching reusability, so that's another good thing. It helps keeps costs down, so it's much less expensive way to do business.
0: So they're saying in uh, in three years, does that seem viable? Yeah, it's probably aspirational, but but
2: yeah, I think the hardest thing is figuring out uh, not how to get it off the ground and out of Earth orbit because we've done that a lot of times, but how to maneuver it to Venus and and get it to do what it's got to do there properly on a shoestring. And what wasn't made clear is if they plan to do. The hard part, which is, in my estimation, command and control themselves, or if they're going to work, with, I suspect they're probably going to work with NASA JPL to do that, because a lot of other places like um, United Arab Emirates just launched their Mars orbiter probe, and India launched their Mars probe a few years back, and that was successful. But what doesn't get a lot of uh, public airplay is the fact that the Poston Laboratory was doing the tracking and sending the commands out and at least in the case of the indian one also helping with the command and control sequences and stuff so huh. you know they're leveraging a lot of american expertise but that, that's fine i mean we want international cooperation the good part is we get the benefits of, of having that data if there's stuff we want there for a lot less money that it would cost to do it with an oh, american yeah, workforce yeah so. that
0: makes sense yeah that's that's pretty smart yeah. that's pretty smart how big a company get is another... uh, how big a company is rocket lab
2: it's pretty small, you know. I don't know exactly how many people work there, but compared to something like the, like SpaceX or or Blue Origin, it's tiny. It's probably I would guess about the same size as something like Virgin Galactic, probably a little smaller than that. Mm-hmm. And really, kind of started to run on a shoestring. I mean, it wasn't a huge amount of investment, but just the incredible determination of this team of people that said, you know, we want to aim specifically at this smaller launcher, lighter payload category and it was a smart thing to do now, since then a whole lot of other companies jumped into that there's i think over 100 of them now so in the next few years there's going to be a shakeout because it just that aren't that many things you want to send up in this space and of course is when you're talking about robotic stuff or satellites as the as the electronics get smaller and more streamlined and need less power and all that you don't need to launch as much stuff right yeah it, yeah it'll last longer and, and do multiple things but there is going to be a market for it. And so we're going to find ourselves competing both with other U.S. companies and increasingly with international companies out of places like China, who are very rapidly uh, developing things in that same realm.
0: Is that, uh, do we know the background of Peter Beck? Uh,
2: not really. I I read it once, but it, it didn't stick with me, I'm afraid.
0: Okay. All right. So, uh, is do, do uh, uh D- do, does NASA have any good uh, Venus missions going on? Um,
2: they've got plans for some really exciting stuff. The best one is the steampunk rover, as people call it. What? Again, because, well, it's so hot and so nasty on the surface and so corrosive that traditional electronics, even shielded electronics, only last a matter of hours. The Soviet Union, I think their best with their uh, big heavy lander was something like two and a half hours. So, um, the the clever guys at NASA and elsewhere said, okay, let's figure out another way to do this. So they've got this basically mechanical rover that would work. It has a, a wind turbine in it that because there's a, a fair amount of wind on the surface, enough anyway, that would convert to electricity and run the electronic, the, the very basic electronic electrical components. But it would uh, also wind up a spring that would allow the thing to drive. And then it communicates with an orbiter. By using visual communication signals off the top of it, basically sh- mechanical shutters that would open and close to allow white surfaces to be exposed. So you're kind of communicating by Morse code, in effect, with your orbiter. So it's a very slow data rate compared to what we're used to, but the thing could potentially run for months. And it looks like a little looks kind of like a mother tank from World War One, except much smaller. Basically, a little box of treads that go all the way around it that'll crawl around and look at the surface of Venus. So that if that works. And if they can get the funding for it, that would be really amazing.
0: Are there are there missions that have been planned for every planet?
2: Well, we've reconnoitered every planet, at least with flyby. Pluto was the last, you know, a few years back. Um, there have been follow-up missions planned for just about every place. Uh, you know, Mercury's kind of been uh, this is not meant to be a joke, but kind of left out in the cold a bit, even though it's right next to the sun because. We've we've gone there a couple of times. It's OK, it's, it's a sunbaked rock. There's not a whole lot more to learn here, but you always find more. You know, you get out there and you answer some questions and to find more. Then you go somewhere like Ceres, which is the largest asteroid out in the asteroid belt. And that place turned out to be a knockout because there's all kinds of weird stuff going on there. We just figured it was a big rock. But it's got cryovolcanoes and sources of replenished ice coming out from inside. Apparently, there's enough heat and pressure in there for that to happen. So there's some kind of dynamics happening within that asteroid. So there's a lot of weird stuff out there, that bears a lot more investigation. So that's another place they want to go. So, yeah, pretty much every planet and most of the interesting moons. I mean, the big, the Holy Grail now is trying to find a way to get to Enceladus on the moons of Saturn and uh, Europa, Jupiter. And at least sample the ice on the surface where it, where it comes out of these these cracks, and the ice from what we think is warm ocean below ocean below to see if there's any biosignatures in there. Better than that would be to be able to actually drill down and send a submersible down there. But that's you know you're going through kilometers of ice, so that's a that's a big ask.
5: Mm,
0: okay, all right, so, but it would be cool. Yeah. But there are, but uh, but there are, you know, the are there people assigned to different planets at NASA? Are there, are there like different groups that are assigned to different planets for studies and for mission possibles and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, there's there's a the department of planetary science at headquarters, and then JPL is the field center that takes care of most of it. Although others get involved as well, so they've got departments for new missions, existing missions. They've got departments that look way out in the future and try to come with wild things like that gravitational lensing mission I was talking about. Yeah, And then they've got these smaller departments that handle the stuff that's already been out there for a while, the most extreme of which is the team that was off off campus from JPL, but I, I heard it was moved back, That's the people still tracking and monitoring Voyager after 43 years now, uh, which is still sending, both Voyagers are sending back data. And it's just a handful of people and a couple of old, I think they're they Spark computers. I think was the the brand then. Workstations on a banquet table <laughs> in a little room because it doesn't take much, you know. But they still got to use the, the big radio dish to bring the data down because yeah. it's such a faint signal signal now. But uh, to me, that's. They're, that's incredibly romantic in a way. It's very sentimental. Yeah. You know? yeah. They're still tracking these little lost puppies out beyond the edge of the shoulders. system. It's just magic.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, Rod, hang on, okay? All right. All right. Rod Pyle is with us, author, uh, journalist, editor in chief of Ad Astra Magazine, written a ton of books about uh, space. He's a space expert. And if you want to jump in here, we would love to hear from you. 312 981 7200. It's Nick DeGilio and WGN. Hello, Nick degilio here on 720 WGN. Uh, we're live in uh, the uh, Skyline studio here on uh, WGN here until 4 o'clock. At 4 o'clock we head over to Bradley Place, say hello to the TV side of WGN, get some early morning news from that great team. And then your morning drive at 5 o'clock is the great Bob Surratt right here on 720 WGN. That's our number. If you would like to join us, we'd love to hear from you. Rod Pyle, author, journalist, editor-in-chief of Ad Astra magazine and space expert, is with us. Hello, Rod.
2: Hey, so Peter Beck. Yeah. I just uh, got a very short bio on him. He left home at 17 to become a tool-making apprentice. Never went to college, I think, is the most interesting thing. Because you don't see that a lot in this kind of trade. Yeah, 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 he always had this ambition to build rockets. So he was working as a, uh, uh, on, quote, smart material composites, and superconductors. I think more as a fabrication guy than an engineer because yeah. he didn't have an engineering background. And while he was working at this company, Industrial Research, he met somebody who invested in his idea. That's when Rocket Lab was formed in 2006. Very cool. They've had seven successful flights.
0: So, yeah, you can do it, man. Very cool. Even if you didn't go to college. How about that? That's something right there. All right, we could have saved a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> man, college is for suckers. Well, listen, I dropped out. <laughs> I didn't. I dropped out. So yeah, I you out. were smart, man. <laughs> you got out while you, well, the game was good. I do not have a degree of any of any kind. Tom,
2: am I hearing that you finished?
0: I did finish. Yeah, proud of it. Mm-hmm. It yeah. only cost me a lot of money. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> when when Nick and I were going to school, it was a little cheaper. I think. Uh, yeah. UCLA was something like eighteen dollars a unit that's when I went. There. When he... It wasn't very much.
5: Jeez.
2: <laughs> uh, I know it's it's embarrassing, but, uh, but you know we had less money too. So that's true. I'll, I'll pretend that it was the same. It wasn't. But I'll pretend that.
0: Uh, we got somebody on the line. It's Erod. Go ahead, Erod.
6: Hi, Nick. I love this subject, and thank you for, uh, Rod. Uh, and I wanted to ask, is there any correlation where we could do this type of research uh, under the ocean, exploring the ocean on Earth, and uh, just checking out stuff that's down there, like all the uh, sunken ships with all the gold and, and things that we hear about in Legends? Sure.
2: So it's interesting you bring that up because there there is a, a significant proportion of the population, both within the science community and out, that, that feel like we really haven't done enough oceanic exploration. Fortunately, these days, it's pretty easy to outfit and drop a robotic vessel down there. So if you want to explore the Titanic, you know, the wreck of the Titanic or one of the other famous shipwrecks, there's an expedition going out fairly soon to look for, the Endeavour, which is uh, Ernest Shackleton's ship that sank under the Antarctic ice in, I think, 1912. Mm. Um, you could do that robotically pretty pretty well. In the 60s, there was a, a big flurry of work done with undersea habitations. Uh, Jacques Cousteau famously did... Uh, did a couple of stints living in, in underwater habitats, but that was like 35, 40 feet. It wasn't very deep. But the U.S. Navy did Sea Lab, which went, I think, down to 600 feet at one point. Wow. And then you get into this super saturation diving, and they're down there for weeks. And it's pretty hard in the body, but you can do it. But it kind of reached this point of once you understood the basics of that environment, what was the reason to keep people down there? You know, it's a little bit like what happened with Apollo. If we're not going to build a permanent base on the moon, why keep going back and forth? And there are good reasons to do so, but we chose not to. And I think the same happened with the undersea research program. But now the, the big interest seems to be in so-called seasteading, which is uh, floating settlements out there. We actually have small communities that are basically an artificial island that's anchored to the seafloor or free-floating. And um, apparently, if they're large enough, and, and it, just the right size and structure to deal with the harmonics of the wave patterns, you could do that and survive even large storms. So that might rekindle the interest in that. Of course, what we really want to see is a discovery of something valuable on the seafloor, 4 because then that means business will get into now you've got money flowing there, and you've got the undersea version of SpaceX. So right. fingers crossed for that.
0: Right, uh, Erod, thanks for the call. 312 981 It's interesting uh, talking about undersea exploration. Uh, is there anything that, um, you know, that that uh, is is similar to space exploration can you learn if you if you're doing oceanic exploration or underwater exploration is there something that that you can learn uh and, and apply that to space exploration
2: yeah um actually there's a real direct correlation i was talking about this in a class the other day because um, i'm in another grad program because what else are you going to do during a pandemic right <laughs> right and um there's a lot of parallels between submarine life and, we think, and either Mars outpost or even long-duration spaceflight in terms of psychological things. I mean, submarines are obviously different. There's crushing pressure instead of vacuum outside the hull, and you can make port in an emergency and that kind of stuff. But the idea that a nuclear sub will stay down for months at a time is not unlike a spacecraft. So you get the crews breaking into small clicks and you know those habits that that guy had in the first month are really really irritating after month six yeah let's like say yeah say there's some crew member who doesn't like independence day right i mean that <laughs> guy's just going to drive you nuts after a while because he's going to be making all these snide remarks on movie night so you know those psychological studies are interesting there's some medical stuff um beyond that i'm not really sure
0: okay all right hey so there's an
2: but article I, I would love to see more done though yeah sorry go ahead
0: Okay, there's an article in uh, technologyreview.com that says the five best places to explore in the solar system besides <laughs> Mars. Have you seen yeah.
2: this? I did. And, you know, the first thing that came up so it's, it's you know, the articles always do well when they're top five or yeah. 10 reasons to, to hate your grandparents or something. Right. So, my first question, though, is, you know, what I would like to see more addressed in an article like that is, okay, why are you going there? You know, are you exploring? Are you just doing scientific research? Are you going there looking for some kind of financial return? Is this just the, you know, like we were talking earlier, humans must explore and go over that next horizon, or or what are your reasons? And then once you figure that out, you have to decide, okay, we're sending people or robots because it's cheaper and easier and safer to send robots than people. So they really didn't go into that. They just talked about, you know, what's as good or better than Mars. And I thought that was kind of an interesting approach on it. But, you know, a lot of people in the space community kind of, they don't dismiss the expeditionary model, but they don't want to see it happening at the moon and Mars again because that's go, explore, come home, and then decide if they're going to go back. They want to go to stay. I still think for Mars, depending on what happens with SpaceX, that the the expeditionary model is going to be a place for a long time. We're going to go, explore, come home, do better next time, do better next time, then eventually find a way to stay there. But so this article talked about, uh, moon, Mars, Venus, Ceres, Europa, and Titan. Right? Right. I think I added Moon myself because that's six. So what's great about the Moon? It's close. It's relatively easy to get to. We've been there, so we kind of get it. It's low gravity, so landing and taking off is not too hard. And you can get home fast. So if there's an emergency, you're not stuck there. So that's pretty good. You can get home in a few days. Mars is tougher. You know, the atmosphere's too thin to really help us parachute as well as we'd like with a heavy lander. But it's not, but it's just thick enough that you need a really good heat shield, so it's kind of a double whammy there,
0: yeah, but so you, everything, landing everything big, would be everything would be fine if you just had some red bull well, there you go, <laughs> and Felix Baumgartner,
2: right right exactly, um, so it's really challenging, and the soil hates human beings, you know, it's full of nasty chemicals and it's, it's apparently very likely to be carcinogenic if breathed because it's sharp and gritty and tiny and it's just bad juju. So it's going to be hard, hard to spend time there, but certainly it's a great exploration target. And let's face it, planets are sexier than moons for the most part because they're big and they remind us of earth. So as a place to go settle people, it's probably the next logical place after the moon. So that makes all kind of sense. Venus, we're going to be living in the clouds if we go there at all, as we discussed earlier, because it's the only thing that makes sense. Going down to the surface is way too much like visiting Barso, which I beat up on every time I'm on the show. <laughs> right. um, they talked about Ceres, and we just just discussed that a few minutes ago. That's a great science target might have resources that we want. And then it went on to Europa and Titan. Now, Europa and Enceladus are kind of in the same class, That's Jupiter and Saturn moons, respectively. Crappy vacation spots, but but likely, we think, at least there's a good chance there's life underneath the ice because these warm oceans that we think are below there. So that makes them really, really appealing. What makes them unappealing for people is they're really cold, they're really far away, and there's a lot of radiation coming from Jupiter and some from Saturn. So, you know, humans and radiation don't mix. Finally, Titan is very cool because it's got a very dense atmosphere, so it's an easier place to land. And it's got oceans, but they're liquid methane. Mm. So it's going to be very cold there. It's really smoggy. You wouldn't be able to see very far into the distance, I don't think, down the surface, although further than we thought. We've landed there once with a robotic probe. But a fascinating place to go. But if I had to make take my vote, it would still be
0: Mars. So you would still take Mars? Yeah. Yeah. All right. And again, every time I hear, every time somebody mentions Titan, I think of Vonnegut. Every single, every single time. I've never read that book, I'm embarrassed to say. Oh, it's great. It's a great book. Sirens of Titan. It's a, a tremendous, tremendous book. Yeah. Well, I'm going to
2: read it and dislike it just to get even.
0: How's just that? Key, Okay. All right. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. You know, it's amazing. We're almost, okay. we're almost at the end of the interview. We're going to take one more break and come back and then talk a little more and wrap yeah. it up. Uh, I can't believe Inter what what am I? Interstellar. Uh, Interstellar. You could have gone. We've been talking oh. to him for <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> two hours. I man. can't believe you Interstellar. could have just let it go. I can't believe Interstellar didn't uh, get brought up. I was trying to be good this time, but there was an article
2: in in the popular press a couple of days ago about the end of Interstellar finally explained, and I thought, "What's to explain?" He. What do you? What do you, what you know he got reconnect I didn't read it it was one of those things where i saw the clickbait moved on i'm afraid to say but it was like you know he reconnected with his daughter so what what's the I don't out? understand
0: there's nothing mysterious about the end of interstellar i don't <laughs> i know <laughs> now you know i mean if you know if you going to talk christopher nolan you know maybe people want to have inception the end of inception explained you know that might oh, be, man. you know that might what be a some, movie. You know, it's a great movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. Oh yeah. yeah.
2: Well, and and the end was deliberately vague and kind of. Well, you could take it where you wanted it, right? I, like I, like Thirteen Monkeys.
0: I agree. I personally think. Monkeys. I personally think that. Um, that that that's actually taking place in reality. The final scene is is actually taking place in reality. It's not a dream. Yeah, but, but but they leave it open to interpretation. They do, but the thing is, if you if you watch it in that scene, that final scene. He actually sees his kids' faces because every time he has that, you know that that flashback, mm. you never see the kids' faces. But he turns around and he sees the kids' faces. And when he takes his token and spins it, the top uh, in yeah. a, in the dream, it just spins and spins and spins straight. Right at the very right. last moment of the movie, it wobbles a little bit and then cut to black.
2: Yeah, which was beautifully done.
0: Oh my god. I, I had now, a dream if the other 2020
2: night. 2020 turns out to be a dream. I'm going to be pissed because <laughs> if this isn't reality. We should have done a lot better. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry,
0: Tom. Go ahead. But I was going to say I had a dream the other night. It was a dream where it was a world where interstellar didn't exist. Wow. And, and it then must have been up, a terrible was a terrible it blissful. It was a terrible <laughs> oh, God, world I so happy. Yeah, all the uh all the water fountains had, you know, orange soda coming out of it. Yeah. My fridge was full of <laughs> Yeah. full of candy. Yeah.
2: Okay. So who who did the Lincoln Mercury commercials then? If or the Lincoln commercials, if it wasn't Strutt and Matthew McConaughey, uh, it
0: was uh, it was Sean Matthew. Hessen. I was going to say Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. <laughs> um, <laughs> what okay, a world! That's fair. Oh my god, that's a nightmare right there. Ferris Bueller like doing Tom's World. Don't be mean. All right. All right, Rod. Hang on. All right. Interstellar rules. All right. We'll break. Hello, Nick Degilio here on 720 WGN. We are live in the Skyline studio here until 4 o'clock. It's a Tuesday morning. Hope everybody is having a great morning. We want to hear from you at 312-981-7200. Uh, we always play back some great Carson comedy clips. Uh, you can watch the Johnny Carson show every night on Antenna TV, and I highly recommend it. Uh, we're going to be playing a bit called Elvis Found Alive in Bismarck. So... <laughs> That's coming up. uh, It's got to be after 1977, right? Yeah, I think it's early 80s. Early 80s. Okay. Uh, We've got that coming up, too. we're also going to talk about weird things that uh, cities do, um, uh, and, of course, anywhere but Chicago, and weird traditions across America. 312-981-7200. That's our phone number. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, And the news is next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. Rod Pyle is our guest, author, journalist, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. And he's a space expert. And here's Rod. Hi, Rod. Hey. Hey. All right. We got a less uh, someone on the line. Here's Beth. Go ahead, Beth.
5: Hi. I
8: wanted to ask your guest about an app called Star Walk 2 um i my research told me that it was some type of it was used in an official capacity like there's a satellite that connects it but i more wanted to ask i mean it's kind of flamboyant like it makes little pictures and sounds but it gives me numbers like p7 p slash two zero zero five seven like all r2 gives like all these i've I've clicked into the notifications. We saw some comets. We saw some meteors. But we saw them on the phone. We didn't see them in the sky. But it lets us know what's in the sky. I just want to know if it's legitimate and what these numbers might mean.
2: So I, I don't know what the numbers specifically are. I'd have to, to see where you were looking. But um, this is, Starwalk 2 is one of a number of apps that you put on your phone or your iPad, or or android device and they're really cool because you you hold it up against the night sky or even in your bedroom in the middle of the day and it will show you what stars are overhead and what the constellations are so when i was a kid we had to drag out our star charts and try and use a a shielded flashlight that was just bright enough to see the star chart and figure out okay that's oh that's cygnus the swan you know it's easier when you grow up in, in a city actually because you can only see the bright stars, so you see Orion and a handful of other constellations. But then you go out into the the dark desert or something, and suddenly there's 3,000 stars overhead, and you're thinking, uh, where are those pictures I drew? And as you've seen with Starwalk, constellations rarely look like what they're supposed to be. So, yeah, Orion kind of looks like a two, two, two triangles, but you can imagine a hunter standing there. But if you look at Cygnus, the swan, which is like a bent cross, or... One of the other, some of the other constellations, like Canis Major, the the dog, you know, you're thinking, that that looks like a trapezoid, that doesn't look like a dog. So uh, it's a great way to learn more about the constellations, and for instance, when that recent comet, Neowise, was appearing, um, I was having trouble finding it, so I downloaded one of those apps and was able to tell exactly what part of the sky it was supposed to be, in. it looked a hell of a lot better on my phone than it did through the eye, but At least I was able to find it. So that's really what they're best at. That's pretty cool. numbers I'm not sure. You might be getting numbers for, like, there are different numbers, NGC numbers or M numbers, like M31 for Andromeda Galaxy. So you might be seeing numbers that identify specific stars or features, but I'm not sure.
0: Okay. Uh, Beth, thanks for the call. 312-981-7200 is the phone number. All right, so uh, I'm just going to say this. A dusty burp.
2: You couldn't wait, could you? No. You were thinking of that all evening. It's all, like, oh, yep, story the whole time. So, Beetlejuice, big star out in Orion. Uh, it's a called a semi-regular variable, which means that it dims and brightens on a relatively predictable schedule. It's not that unusual threat to see a variable star. There's a lot of them. And over the years, there's been a lot of theories about why they do that. But the thing about Beetlejuice that got people's attention was that uh, last year, you know, normally these dim by a few percent, never more than 10 than percent, I don't think, on on average anyway. But Betelgeuse went down by like 40 percent and stayed there for a while, which was kind of freaking people out. And it thought that that's possibly a precursor or an indicator of an upcoming supernova event. And since Betelgeuse is a uh, red giant, if it was in our solar system, it would be almost as large as the orbit of Jupiter. So no worry. Um <laughs> You know that that would would be quite a show. So if it is going to go supernova, it doesn't. It, there's no risk to us because it's 725 light years away. But um, it would be a, a great thing for astronomers and astrophysicists, and even normal people to just look up in the sky and see this bright object for a matter of days or weeks. Yeah. But the the, the new theory is they they saw with Hubble they detected this big ejection of hot gas um, that they think. Blew out of the star, and it was it was like much brighter than the star. So it was once you knew what you were looking at, it was easy to figure out what it was. And we're talking about gas jets that are traveling at 200,000 miles per hour right. in the fall of 2019. Right, so they think that that was ejected from the star, and then as it cooled, cooled into a dust, possibly carbon. I'm not exactly clear on what the dust would have been. And then occluded the star. So it blocked our view of it for a while. So they're thinking that it might have just been this natural phenomenon, the star, although it's still going to change the brightness, that this was a one-time thing that made it really dim big time. Yeah. So on the upside, we don't lose Betelgeuse because it's a pretty thing to see in the sky. On the downside, we don't get to see a supernova, at least not for a while. Okay. But it's kind of reaching that stage in its life where it should happen pretty soon in terms of you know, tens of thousands of years. So
0: who, stay tuned. Who, who named it Betelgeuse? I think that's an Arabic name. <laughs> it it I is. I figured Michael A, A, A Keaton what? named it. Uh, you on, you, if, if, you, if you say it three times, does it just appear? Does the star just appear?
2: Uh, no, I, I show up in your living room. Oh, okay, all right. all right, yeah, yeah but, so because I'm as, as despicable as Michael Keaton, and what a great film that was.
0: <laughs> I love Beetlejuice. That's another one I love. I did too. Yeah, yeah. All right, now how about it this? We, uh, do, we're going to have a, Are we going to have real X uh, Files here? The Pentagon's announcement is uh, they're establishing a tax task force to detect, analyze, and, ca- and catalog uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon. So what? What? What's saving go- the best for last? What's going on? Yeah,
2: well, so. So this is that long ongoing story, the tale of that long ongoing story since you know the early two thousands about you know the, the accidental release or secret release of these videos of the Tic Tac UFOs and the other ones, uh, Flear One. I forget the names of them, Gimbal, um, which indicated that that, you know, they were seeing more than most of us knew about, and then earlier this year, the Navy finally said, yeah, okay, let's just make it official. They've been out there for years anyway. But also part of the story is that while we were told, at least through some venues, that, that the UFO investigation effort had never been shut down, it never really was, but they changed the name so it's they call it um, I can't remember the acronym, but it's basically uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. That's it, UAP. Yeah, it's UAP. UAP. Right. So so now, supposedly, they're forming a new group, and I think it's under the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence, if I remember correctly, that's going to give regular releases of information on this every six months. The trick here is, these are unidentified. So whether it's UFO or UAP, there's still that word unidentified in there. So while there's an awful lot of people who would love these to be alien spacecraft, right. there's a lot of thought around you know, security risks and national security and all that, that these could be Chinese or Russian uh, uh, drones of of some advanced technology that maybe they understand better than we do that are actually surveilling our coastlines and so forth. Then you get the argument of, well, they're moving at these incredible speeds and they're changing directions so fast and all that, but the evidence isn't conclusive on that. So the only thing I've seen that really kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit was this... uh, a scientist that was retained by the Pentagon, but uh, but who works for the Aerospace Corporation, which is a very legitimate, high-profile group, it's a, a company that works with the government on science and engineering problems, who came right out and said, Off, off-world vehicles, not made of this Earth. You know, evidence of something. He doesn't say it's a machine. He doesn't say it's a metal fragment. But something that led him to make that statement. So a lot of question marks there, and it's going to be an exciting story to watch play out.
0: Okay. Well, we'll keep uh, we'll keep an eye on that. All right, Rod. Uh, really quickly before we let you go, what are you working on now?
2: I'm working on a virtual space settlement conference that's going to be online in uh, November, and the next issue of the magazine, which I'll make sure you get a copy of. Please so. do,
0: yeah. At Astro Magazine, yeah. and you can check out Rod Pyle
2: books. Correct. Oh. And yes, and I forgot one more thing. I'm about to drop uh, 10 new episodes of my podcast, and I'm very excited that I got Frank White on there, who came up with and wrote The Overview Effect, which is what happens to people once they leave Earth and look back, how that transforms their ah. perceptions of life and okay. humanity. So just did a real interesting review interview with him that will last for three separate episodes. So okay. I'll send you a link when I get it done.
0: That's awesome. What's uh, What's the name of the podcast so people can check it out? Cool Space News on iHeart, Apple, and other
2: venues where you look for your favorite podcasts.
0: Cool Space unquote. News, Cool Space News. Yes, sir. Rod, always a pleasure. Yeah. We'll talk to you next month, my friend. Enjoy floating on the on the on the on the boat.
2: Thank you, and you keep looking up because that's where they're going to come from.
0: Okay, thanks, buddy. All right, take care, <laughs> Rod Pyle. <laughs> He's truly one of my favorite guests. Dude, that freaked me out. Yeah, man. Look Keep up, looking up. That's where they're going to come from, man. That's where they're going to come. Come, come from. Rod. That's Ooh. what you want to hear at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Thank you, Rod. All right. Nick degilio here on 720 WChannel. Let's hit the news. Mm. Nick DiGilio here on 720 WGN. We are live in the Skyline studio. We're 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago here till 4 o'clock. At 4 o'clock, we head over to Bradley Place to the TV side of WGN, get some early morning news from that great team. And Bob Surratt has your uh, morning drive starting at 5 o'clock. 312-981-7200 is the phone number. We're going to talk about um, uh, things that make you weird anywhere but Chicago and some other uh, weird traditions Across the uh, across the uh, U.S., but first, uh, out of Philadelphia, the uh, coronavirus pandemic has slammed the brakes on this year's Philly Naked Bike Ride. You know they do a naked bike ride here. That they do, and um, it, uh, when I was when I would do the show, my set when I was on Saturday nights, um, do the show from the uh, Showcase Studio. I would be treated with hundreds of naked people on bikes. Some people weren't naked; they cheated. Yeah, you got you got to go for the full Monty. Yeah, and it would always be you know a little distracting to have like uh, you know hundreds of people on bikes going right down Michigan Avenue, north m- northbound on Michigan Avenue, nude. What I you know I'm not trying to say one way or the other whether it's a. Uh... You know, good thing or a bad thing. I just, I'm curious as to what would possess someone to ride their bike naked. I'm not real sure, but you want to make sure you clean that seat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember... (laughs) (laughs) I was uh I was watching it one night and uh you know as as they're driving by and it's a little distracting you know you're doing sure. a radio show you're right to look out the window and there's like hundreds of naked people on bikes start place. giving like a little play by play and I I did I said there's too many dongs and not enough boobs <laughs> 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 You know honestly that always seems to be the way when you ever see something about like nudist beaches or nudist colonies it's always a lot of guys Oh the dudes are, the dudes were all yeah they're just you know yeah hanging out yeah and uh you know, for for what few I think there's a gender disparity. It's just I mean, I think the whole thing's weird. It's very it's um, very weird. But. I don't understand, you know, why you would want to ride your bike now. It was, now it's not for a charity or anything, right? You're not raising money yeah, for a charity. That's I just a think good it's point. like I mean if they're raising money for a charity, that's awesome, that's cool. But I don't think it is. I just think it's a bunch of people taking off their clothes and riding their bikes around Chicago. You know, uh, my question is, is that if it were for a charity, I wonder what charity it would be for. <laughs> it's well, not going to be for St. Jude's, I'll tell you no. that much. No. I don't know what the charity would be. Get naked on a bike for kids. I don't know. No. Maybe- uh, I don't know, providing clothes for people who don't have clothes. You know, that's not bad. That's not bad. That would yeah. make, make sense, I mean, you I know? Would say that would be, the more, the, I believe, the most logical tie-in, right? Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Or maybe- uh, I don't know, some of that, maybe breast cancer or testicular cancer. Well, that's cool. Cancer, Whatever you, you know, I mean. That, listen, if it's for a if it's for a charity, that's fantastic. That's awesome. More power to them. But I don't think it is. I just think it's people taking off their clothes and riding around. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's remarkable, and it's 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 across the world, you know. The Naked Bike Ride. Yeah, they've got. How about it. how about the Pantsless uh, CTA? The Pantsless, uh, where you take off your pants, and that's in November, I think, right? Yeah. Listen, man, I've seen enough people with their pants off on the CTA. When it's not yeah. pants off day. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Listen to this. Toronto, for Toronto, oh. their, uh, their version of the naked bike ride, it had a, it had a slogan. Uh, Less gas, more ass. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? Maybe it's about using fuel. Maybe it's a statement about, uh, you know. Not using, you know, not using gas. Statement about True. the environment. Maybe that's what it is. I feel like we're trying to ascribe meaning to a truly <laughs> chaotic a b- system. A bunch of people taking off their clothes and riding yeah. around on a the bike. These, these are these must be the type of people that go to Burning Man every year. You know, but I'll tell you something though, Tom. There's a lot of them. There are. I mean, it, you know that, that parade of naked bike riders would go by for a long time. I mean, it would last a it's long huge. time. It, right, they'd be going by the window for minutes at a time. Yeah, well, there was the my experience with it was also through WG, and I didn't even know it existed. Mm-hmm. But uh, the great Amy Guth and I were doing our Saturday night program seven to nine, and we That's actually prime had, time right there for prime it. time. Yep, and uh, we actually had uh, someone from the Adler Planetarium. I, I believe this was coming up on that eclipse that made Tom Skilling cry with joy. Oh, okay. And so she's talking about the eclipse and everything like that. All <laughs> of a sudden, she turned. We turn and she just stops talking. The guest stops talking. God love her, and she just goes wide eyed, and we all just look to see what she's staring at at the showcase studio, and just, mi- just I feel like millions of people. It felt like millions. It's probably did, only did, less than a thousand. Did Amy not know about it? Amy must have known about the the I naked bike, right? I think she realized it on yeah. air, and she oh, she blushed, and I'll I'll tell you that was not the full moon we were expecting that night. Yeah, it was. Well, it's it was <sighs> it's you know. It's it's distracting. I, I will tell you that. Luckily, the few times that I was down there for it, I don't think I ever had an in studio guest while it was happening. Thank God. Yeah, it was all for you. You got to describe in great detail every you know, wrinkle and every pore. One of my favorite. One of my favorite um, showcase uh, studio moments was when I had I had Tom Green in. Uh, oh, God. Okay, and I you know Tom I know Tom now. Sure. I've become friends with him and. Um, he was in town doing some gigs, at, uh, doing a couple of gigs at Zany's, and um, so he came in studio. And I was filling in during the day. I can't remember whose show I was filling in, and um, you know, but I was filling in. Might have been I can't remember. You know, might have been John. I, I, I don't know. Sure, I can't remember. Sure. But anyway, I'm filling in during the day, and so so he comes in. All right, and this was the first day of our new program director, Bill White. Okay, so. You know, I mean, you know, Tom Green is like, oh yeah, he's ADD. He's you know easily distracted. He's he's nuts. Mm-hmm. And I, he walked in, and as soon as he saw like all the glass and everything, he starts banging on the glass. He's like talking about what's happening. I mean, I'm trying to interview him, you know, a- about his career and about Freddie got fingered and about you know Zanies and all this stuff. I'm trying to interview him, but he's completely because he's Tom Green. He's completely distracted. Um. And just like yelling stuff into the microphone at people on this, you know, describing what's happening in Pioneer Court, talking about Michigan Avenue. So get this. As he's like losing his mind, Bill White walks by. First day as program director. I haven't even met him yet. He walks by the window. Tom Green goes, hey, man. Hey, what's wrong with you, man? And he starts screaming at our program director, brand new (laughs) program director. And I'm beside myself. I'm like, cause I, I I knew he was our program director. Mean, right. I, I just not, I didn't officially met him yet. I saw him in the hallways and I knew who he was and everything. Mm-hmm. He had just started. I think it was maybe his second day.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: So he starts screaming at Bill and Bill just kind of like ducks because he's screaming at him. Like Tom, mm-hmm. Tom Green is screaming at him. And Bill just kind of like ducks a little bit and like walks away. And uh, I go to, you know, we go to commercial. And I'm like, Tom, that's my new boss. He's like, I don't care. <laughs> That's one of my favorite because you know you can't bring, somebody like Tom Green you can't do an interview in the showcase studio with somebody like Tom Green, no, because he's nuts. But also you can't not take the opportunity to just go. I mean, come on, that interview's got to be someone no, no, no. Like a real. I, I, I will tell you something. It was incredibly entertaining. Sure, because Tom Green's nuts, and you know, like combine his insane, and he was drinking coffee. Like he had he'd gone to the Starbucks across the street, so he's all hopped up on caffeine juice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and start screaming at my new boss. And I couldn't, get, I couldn't like, actually conduct an interview with him because he was so oh. distracted by what was happening in Pioneer Court oh. and on Michigan oh. Avenue, and he kept screaming into the mic and describing things and yelling at people as they walked by. That's an honor, though, to get yelled at by Tom Green. I would agree. Most people wouldn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> 90% of the world
4: might disagree.
0: I remember the screening of Freddie Got Fingered. I remember, I vividly remember the screen. I'll tell you, I can tell you a little bit more about it. But anyway, the, the Philadelphia naked bike ride has been canceled because of the coronavirus. And that's, uh, a, a, you know, a weird little tradition in Philadelphia. We also have some weird traditions in Chicago. We're going to talk about Chicagoisms, where things that will make you weird anywhere but Chicago. And then we have some uh, very weird, uh, bizarre traditions across the U.S., that we're going to learn about. And if you know of any of these uh, sort of weird traditions, and if you've got some Chicagoisms that you want to share with us, 312 981 7200. It's Nick DeGilio and WGN. Is this Pablo Cruz? No, man. Baby, come back. Nah, it's player. Player, that's right. Get a hold of yourself. Uh, how could I mix up player and Pablo Cruz? Yeah, they don't at all sound the same. What was Pablo Cruz's big hit? Uh, I've played it before. They had a. Uh, they had quite a. They, they had, had one. I think. Curve. I think they had a couple of big hits. Can't remember Pablo Cruz. I saw them. Uh, Uh, Love will find a way. Yeah. Love will find a way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Pablo Cruz. Saw them open for uh, Steve Miller and the Eagles (laughs) at the World Series of Rock at Comiskey Park. That's what they were calling rock? Yeah. We (laughs) went there to see. We left during the Eagles because I can't stand the Eagles. But I went for Steve Miller. Steve Miller's good. I like Steve Miller. Yeah. But Pablo Cruz, I think there was one more band. I can't remember what it was, but I remember Pablo Cruz, somebody else, Steve Miller, and then the Eagles, and my dad and I were there. And it was like the second song into the Eagles, and we're like, yeah, bye. <laughs> so, Nick DeGilio here on 720 WGN. We're talking about Chicagoisms and, uh, and some very strange uh, traditions from across the country. And in Philly, they have the naked bike ride. So anyway, really quickly, the Freddy Got Fingered screening, the critics screening, took place in the screening. And there's a screening uh, room in a in a business building down on Lake Street, and that's where we saw a lot of them. Uh, you know, a ton of movies when I was uh, going to screenings during the day and stuff. So they screened Freddy Got Finger, uh, and it's packed with movie critics and stuff. And uh, you can, as the movie was progressing, you could, you could, you could feel like you could it was palpable palpable the 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 hatred that was building in that room by the by the critics and some of which were like you know like guys in their early 30s and stuff like that and they were just very they just kept getting more angry as the movie kept going and of course i was laughing my ass off during the whole thing cuz i thought it was brilliant and and um so i remember at the end of the movie if you've seen you've seen Freddie got fingered right yeah several times okay Oh, that's nice! Nice that you saw it several times. That that means that you're an intelligent human being. I don't know if that I would go that far, but fair enough. <laughs> so, um, at the very end of the movie, during the like, at the, like right near the end of the, you know, I think it's at the final credits. Now, this was at the time when he was when Tom was married to Drew Barrymore. Okay, so this was that period where he was married to Drew Barrymore, and so everybody was like what the hell is Drew Barrymore doing with this guy? You know, because Drew Barrymore, like America's sweetheart, she's really cute, people love her. A lot of fanboys, you know what I mean? Just love her. And they're like, what is she doing with Tom Green? how How is it possible that she's with Tom Green? So at the very end of the movie, if you remember, it's the two of them right. looking at the camera, mocking people, and then like making out. And then like what well, they walk away. So it was like, not only was this an assault on the audience, which is what the whole point of that movie is. <laughs> right. That's the whole point of the movie. Was it's the biggest it's the it's by the way the most expensive and biggest prank that Tom Green has ever played on anybody was Freddy Got Fingered. <laughs> he got 20th Century Fox to spend millions of dollars on basically what is a prank on the audience, which I just one of the reasons why I think it's so brilliant. But anyway, at the end They're looking at the camera, he and Drew Barrymore. And already people are mad about the movie. And I could feel all the fanboy geek critics getting so angry because here's Tom Green with Drew Barrymore. They're mocking the camera and they make out and then walk away. And that was his message. It was like, not only did I just screw with you for an hour and a half, but now I'm going to leave with Drew Barrymore and have sex with her. That was basically wow. what the statement was. What, what was it that Roger Ebert said? Uh, this movie isn't the bottom of the barrel. It's, it's not even It's not, uh, It's not. not even part of the barrel. Yeah. It doesn't even deserve to be mentioned in the same sentence as barrels right. or something like that. That's exactly what he said. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. Did I tell you my encounter with Raj afterwards? I think so. We, we, we were on the elevator hey, afterwards. The elevator, we both right? got on the elevator at the same time. Because he heard me laughing during the movie. And so he says to me, we get on the (laughs) elevator, he says to me, did you actually like that movie? And I said, yeah, I thought it was great. And he's like, are you joking? And I'm like, no, I thought it was great. And he's like, oh, my God. And he just shook his head. He made reference to me in the review. Not by name. Right. But like what he said, actually, one of my colleagues, I couldn't believe it, one of my colleagues actually thought this movie was good. We're in the elevator, and he thought I was nuts. He was just like, you know, he looked at me like, and he just shook his head. You know, I mean, he was just like, "What? what is wrong with you? How does it feel to know that that's like, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you've talked to Roger. You talked to Roger past that point? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. But, like, imagine if you hadn't had the chance. Like, you just never ran into each other again. Is that the <laughs> only thing Roger Ebert ever said to you was, yeah. you
4: thought that was funny? Yeah.
0: Well, Roger and I had conversations. We were friendly. You know what I mean, and same same thing with Gene. You know, um, I remember you know Gene. Gene had had a you know the operation. He had this his first operation on his on his uh, on his brain, mm-hmm. and um, you know what movie he sat next to me? Like it was like right after his, his first surgery, and he sat next to me. Uh, you, you know what movie it was that he sat next to me, during All Right, Armageddon. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> what an honor that would Siskel was been. sitting next to me during Armageddon. I would have loved to sit next to Gene Siskel and watch <laughs> Armageddon. We could have uh, talked about how much we loved it. Gene was a great guy, man. They were both great guys. They were both just really, really great guys. And we were lucky to have them in this city. You know what I mean? I mean, the most influential film critics in the country. You know, they changed the game. That TV show changed it. Nobody read movie reviews, you know? That wasn't a thing. You got Gene and Roger, and they were local man, and they brought so much attention to this city. And uh, and the shtick that they did was real. That's the way they were in the screening room. That was the kind of relationship they had. They would, if they're not on camera. They were kind of acting the same way that they would, you know, that sort of weird, kind of funny, antagonistic stuff that would happen between the two of them. They were great guys. So, all right. So the naked bike ride is off. Are you disappointed? A little. Were you gonna? Were you gonna go fly to Philly just to be a part of it? Honestly, if I was gonna do it, I might as well do it in a different city where I might not be seen. So it used to be in in September, but it was a little chilly. It was a little too chilly, so they moved it up to August. A little too chilly. I was in the pool. I was in the shrinkage. The uh, now, when is it in 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 Chicago? It's like May, right? Oh boy. I wanna say yes. May or June? I think it's pretty close to the beginning of summer. If I'm not mistaken. You know when they should do it in Chicago? February. As in uh <laughs> Oh God. <laughs> uh yeah. They they um World Naked Bike Ride Chicago uh would have been in June. 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 World naked bike ride. Gotta love it. Jeez. I would have loved to have seen Amy's face. <laughs> it was... Or the Adler Planetarium guest face. Yeah, it was a combination of shock and uh, truly adorable bashfulness. Yeah. but I mean, hell, we were all blushing a little bit because you look outside and all of a sudden there's, you know, Bert and Ernie flopping around. It's just, well, it's ooh, funny I... because people who, you know, people walking down the street, down Michigan Avenue and across Pioneer Court, just stop in their tracks. Just completely stopping their tracks and just like looking out in the street, people pulling out their cameras, (laughs) taking pictures of naked people as they drive by on their, as they ride by on their bikes. Yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't do it. I believe that's called, uh, you call that a gaper's block, right? Well, yeah. Now, is that a term? I had heard that that was a term that was. It's very Chicago. Very Chicago and made up by traffic people. Like it wasn't really a thing. Um, it was made up by traffic by traffic reporters or something like that. I don't know if it. I wouldn't say it was made up. I mean, I it was probably made up, coined by someone. Yeah. But uh, I've also heard it as Gapers Delay. Like, well, the, the like, word "gapers." As soon as you see the word "gapers," you know what yeah, it is. Gapers it's, block. I've I've heard people say either "gapers block" or "gapers delay" because right. if there's an accident, if yeah, there's, people uh, stop and look at it. They, they yeah, slow yeah, down. They slow down and uh, look. I've never seen. I've never seen a siren. I've never seen a flashing lights before. Yeah. How did that guy's leg get over there? Yeah. You know that sort of grim stuff. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I think it was probably. Um, coined to describe a real thing. I, they, well, it they, is a real they, thing. They clearly exist. But well, yeah, traffic, no, it's a real thing, man. Yeah, traffic people. <laughs> when you said they made it up, I was like, no. No, Whoa. no, the term is made up. Yeah, the, the actual was, thing is real. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, probably in by traffic before, people. Before they called it a Gaper's Block, it existed. People would slow down to yeah. look at a traffic stop. Robin street. Baumgarten would be up in the traffic copter right. talking about the Gaper's Block. Oh, Robin. She's awesome. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we've got things that are weird anywhere but Chicago. So we're going to talk about Chicagoisms, thing that things that are truly, truly Chicago. 312 981 7200. And then we've got some weird uh, USA bizarre traditions from across the country. 312 981 7200. If you want to join us, it's Nick DiGilio.
7: Could use a few pounds, tight pants, points, all the
9: She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high, way up firm and high. I'd pass the cornfields when the woods got
5: heavy.
0: Yeah, man, a little seeger. 312-981-7200 is the phone number on WGN. Uh, things that make you weird anywhere but Chicago. By way of introduction, we'll get to some of these things that are very Chicago. While other cities pride themselves on keeping things weird, Chicagoans typically consider themselves uh, ourselves to be pretty normal human beings, but we hate to break the news to you, but that's not true at all. We've got plenty of routine behaviors that, when you really think about it, are pretty darn strange. Just try doing any of the following in other parts of the country and see what kind of reaction you get. (laughs) So uh, there you go. We'll get to that uh, in a couple of minutes. But we got uh, Johnny Carson. So listen, Johnny Carson's show is on uh, Antenna TV every night. And then every uh, weekday morning at 2.30, we like to play some Carson comedy clips, whether it be some stand-up. Or sketches and interviews or anything like that. Well, right now we're going to find out whether Elvis is alive in Bismarck.
9: I don't know if you're aware of this, but a Cincinnati radio Cincinnati radio station has offered WKRC yeah. has offered two million dollars for documentary proof that Elvis is alive. Well, folks, <laughs> for the past several months, the NBC network has been doing exhaustive research. And I think we're the first person to make this claim. We have found Elvis Presley. We tracked him down. He's living in a small cabin in Bismarck, North Dakota. (laughs) Apparently, Elvis just got tired of running, and he agreed to let us interview him tonight via satellite hookup from uh, station KFYR in in Bismarck, North Dakota. So uh, let's cut there now. Uh, Elvis Elvis are you there? It's Johnny Carson. Uh, yes sir, Mr. Carson.
7: I'm here. Yeah. Uh,
9: Elvis, I, I I want to thank you very much for being with us. I, uh, we noticed that you've settled in Bismarck, North Dakota. Could you tell us Elvis, what's the biggest difference between Bismarck and Memphis? Uh, probably the biggest difference, man, yeah, I never died in Bismarck. <laughs> Elvis, just to satisfy everyone that you're really Elvis, I'm going to ask you some other personal questions that only Elvis could possibly answer. Would that be all right with you? Yes, yeah, sir. That'd be fine. Yeah. Uh, could you tell me, what was your Army serial number? I was Private Presley five three three one zero seven six one, sir. Oh, by God, that's correct. Now, of course, we all know that's a matter of public record. You could have looked that up. So let me ask you a little tougher question. Who was your third grade teacher? Oh, man, I'll never forget. That was Mrs. Jenkins. God, he's right on. <laughs> uh, try this one. Now, when you were a teenager, you drove a Chevy, right? Uh, no, sir. It was a 48 DeSoto. Uh, yeah, you're right. That was a trick question. <laughs> then it's got to be him. And you tell us, Elvis, was there anything unusual about the passenger seat in that DeSoto? <laughs> uh yes sir in fact there was a stain on the seat cover man uh-huh. all right Elvis now what caused the stain and what was that stain shaped like oh man that was a long time ago Mr. Well, Carson well do, do the do the best you can well I remember that that stain it, it was caused by orange crush that that's right and and man that baby it was shaped like a downtown skyline of Nashville if you know My what I mean god right? that's yeah? it that's yeah. what exactly <laughs> well, all right here's another question a little tougher what did you carve on the tree outside your bedroom window at Graceland? Oh, as easy, sir. It was EP loves PP, which stands for Priscilla Presley. Uh, no, sir. It stands for PP. I drank a lot of beer up in that room. Man. <laughs> <I tell you>. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: we can't figure out who Elvis who, who was playing Elvis there. It must have been him. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know. There you go. That was kind of weird, man. Live via satellite, here's Elvis, and we don't know who the person is who played Elvis. All right, there's Johnny cracking the case, man. Quizzing Elvis on questions that only the real Elvis would know. (laughs) Uh, I love Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson show, you can watch it every night on Antenna TV, and then every, uh, Weekday morning at 2.30, we play back some Carson comedy clips, and we'll do it again tomorrow. 312-981-7200, we're talking about um, things that make you weird anywhere but Chicago, and then we're going to talk about some very bizarre traditions across the country. Uh, We've got some people on the line. If you want to join us, it's 312-981-7200. Here's Oren on WGN. Go ahead, Oren. Yeah,
8: yeah. I was uh, the chief sailing instructor for Sail Chicago, formerly American Youth Hostels uh, sailing program. And on the 4th of July, we would take the boats out. Uh, I, you could put six people in, in the Rhodes 19, and we'd sail out into the lake if, if the lake was flat. But otherwise, we sailed in the outer harbor uh, between the uh, Monroe Harbor and the um, lighthouse area in there, throw out the anchor, and just sit back and have a picnic and watch the fireworks on 4th of July. And there aren't very many places in the U.S. where you can actually do that. And our program was, it and still is, the the neatest way to to take sailing lessons and enjoy yourselves out on the lake with you and your friends. Um, There's a call-in answering service. You can call it 24 hours and register the boat and uh, go down there, meet your friends at the harbor, and and go out on the lake and sail. And it's just fantastic but it was especially nice on the 4th of july because of all the activity
0: sure all right okay orin thanks you bet all right 312-981-7200 steve on wgn go ahead steve
4: hey yeah thanks for having me hey first a slight correction if i could world series iraq was not steve miller and um uh, eagles because i was there and the Comiskey Park actually started on fire. World Series of Rock was Aerosmith, Rick Derringer, and... Well, actually,
0: actually, Steve, Anytime they had a concert at Comiskey, they called it the World Series of
4: Rock. Oh, okay. I stand corrected, and I don't mean to be a persnickety uh, yeah. guy, but any- <laughs> so that's fine. But anyway, uh, I was thinking of a couple um, Polar Plunge... Kind of, you know, the oh, yeah. and sure. people would jump into sure. the lake, and all that uh, there were people in my beach community in Michigan who did that in Michigan, but it became kind of a thing in Chicago too. Uh, the other one I thought of was Venetian Nights, which used to be really nice when they first started it. Venetian Nights in yeah. uh, Monroe Harbor, kind of related. That was amazing. That was totally amazing. So yeah, there is right. a couple there. All and right. thanks, uh, thanks, Steve. Yeah, thanks. All, right, all right, take, take
0: care. Three one two nine eight one seven two hundred is the phone number okay uh things that make you weird anywhere but Chicago and uh, you're gonna recognize these these things that make uh, that make us this city you would only do or say these things in this city and the first one is try try doing this in a different uh, part of the different part of the country Tom go in someplace and go uh, order a sandwich wet <laughs> probably spitting it Unless you're from Chicago, hearing someone order their sandwich wet would probably conjure up visions of that scene in National Lampoon's Family Vacation where Clark accidentally eats a sandwich that's uh, wet. The movie's not called Family Vacation. It's called Vacation. And yes, the, the, the dog peed on the sandwiches. Thankfully, Aunt Edna and her evil dog have never come anywhere near our favorite Italian beef joints. You have a favorite Italian beef? Oh, that's tough. Um, big fan of Al's. Al's is great. Al's over in uh, Wrigleyville. There's also one at River North, mm-hmm. right? As you're, you know, as you're on Ohio or Ontario, as you're, you know, going getting on the highway, it's right there. Yeah. Well, and I also love that Al's because it's like basically across the street from uh, the Nisei Lounge, and you can just go grab yourself a Al's yeah. beef, bring it on in. So, it's nice. I, uh, I'm a fan of, well, Portillo's is great. Great beef. Goes without question. Goes without saying. Um, um I, uh, Let's see. Roma's. You ever go to Roma's? Can't say I have. Roma's on Cicero near uh, Montrose. Not very far from Six Corners. Um, I'm partial to that place because I've been going there, I was going there since high school, and I had friends who worked there, like high school buddies who worked there. Did you get free beef? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, no one, yeah, I'm really partial to the place where I get my food for free. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of great beef places in the city. It's right. hard to narrow it down. There's a place in Crystal Lake called Mr. A's. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually believe the owner, the original owner, passed away fairly recently. Great, uh, great place. I hope it stays open. Uh, but I always remember they would have a sign in there they would you know do catering level, you know, sort of beef because you get you get that sort right, of, yeah, thing of course. quite a bit. And I just always remember it said, come get your party beef here. Mm-hmm. And I just I was like, I wonder if the party beef is better than the regular beef or different from the regular beef. When I was uh, staying with my folks that past week, just this past week, my 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 dad went out to Babo's. Went to Bobo's and got some beefs. Brought them home. Um Babos has good. They're they're good. They're up on West Irving Park, uh, but there's a lot of great beef places. It's you know you can't narrow it down to just one, but um, you know and obviously Portillo's is a chain, which is cool, um, and they've got great food. Portillo's, uh, so they're great. Great Italian beef, really good beef. So, but yeah, it's weird if you uh, if you try to order a sandwich someplace else other than Chicago and just add like my sandwich wet, you're gonna get a blank stare from the person behind the counter. So, all right, uh, things that, are, that will make you weird anywhere but in Chicago. 312 981 7200, and then we're going to talk about some very bizarre traditions across the country. <laughs> It's Nick DiGilio on 720 WGN, live in the Skyline Studio, 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago. We're here until 4. The news is next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom, right here on WGN. Things that make you weird anywhere but Chicago. How about this? Uh, We got a ton more here. The first one was ordering a sandwich wet. Can't do that anywhere but here. Uh, Here's Mark on WGN. Go ahead, Mark.
6: Uh, that Leo Sayer song is a good one, Autumn 1980. I uh, In Chicago, you are forbidden, if not almost an outlaw, if you put ketchup on a hot dog. Elsewhere in the country, you might get stared at if you
4: don't put ketchup on a hot dog.
0: Yeah, well, I have, I've often said, Mark, that if you're uh, over the age of six and you put ketchup on a hot dog, you should go right to jail. <laughs> That's pretty much what I think. Uh, 312-981-7200. Here's Dave on WGN. Hey, Dave.
6: Hey, how's it going? Uh, we cut our pizza in a gr- our thin crust in a grid uh, on the east coast and on the west coast they cut it in triangles. Right. Uh, then and the reason why is because in Chicago it's colder, so you want you want to eat the outside slices first because those will cool off, and then the interior squares will remain warm. Uh, you don't need that so much on the east and the west coast.
0: No, you don't see that. It's tavern style, is what they call that. Thin crust tavern style, and it was cut in squares because they would put the pizza out in taverns. People could snack on it, and then they would get thirsty and drink more booze. That's why they, thats exactly why that's the—that's the origin of the tavern style cut pizza. I thought it was because of the uh, cold weather. Nope, nope. Tavern style pizza cut in squares, and, <laughs> and it was they would, they would put it out on the bar. People would like take a little piece of pizza and they would eat it, and then they would drink more.
7: And I've eaten
6: hundreds of uh, Aurelios, San Fratellos you know from the south suburbs and my cousins from the east coast or the west coast would come in and they'd be like shocked and be like what
7: hey they cut this pizza wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. All right, Dave, thanks. All right. Yeah, I have a friend who uh who hates it. Who hates it. My friend is from Pittsburgh. And uh when he orders a pizza in Chicago when he orders because you know you get your thin crust pizza and it's always cut in square as God intended. Um but he when he calls to order a pizza, he insists that they cut it in triangles. And he always checks the pizza to make sure it's cut in triangles before the before the delivery guy leaves, because if you know, because there were times like if it was cut in squares, he would actually send it back. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Which of course is ridiculous, completely ridiculous. But uh, yeah, uh, Don on WGN. Hi, Don.
7: Hi, Nick. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, and the police used to have a vehicle.
6: They would come out and pick up ten or fifteen people at a time. It was called here, I guess. I know it was called a paddy wagon, but I don't know if that's just Chicago or not.
0: I have no what idea. I, know. I mean, I, I know what a paddy wagon, I mean, that's what it, that's what they call it. Uh, they yeah. call it a paddy wagon. I don't know if that's what it's called anyplace else, but I know, you know, that's what it is here. I don't yeah, know.
6: That's, that's, that's what I always heard anyway. I, maybe Chicago was the origin of that, I am not don't sure. Know.
0: I don't know. But, yeah, that's what it okay. is. It's a paddy wagon. Okay. All right, Don, Thank Thanks. You. Okay, how about this? We got um, standing in line for donuts like it's Black Friday. While most of us roll our eyes at people who opt to stand in line for hours at Walmart on Black Friday, we, along with a few other cities in the Midwest, will gladly wake up extra early and stand in line at our favorite bakery on Punchki Day. Much like the vast majority of Black Friday deals, you can actually get Punchki year-round at most European bakeries. But, you know, it's just not the same when you stand in line and brag about it on social media. Punchki day, man. Punchkies, Love them. All right. How about this? Do you remember this? Mm. Celebrating the life and death of a billboard. Oh, God. What was this? I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, the 2015 movie Aloha (laughs) barely registered on the radar of most Americans its billboard became a beloved staple in, Le- in Logan Square. Sadly, just as neighborhood residents were planning on a one-year anniversary party for the billboard, tragedy struck. On Friday, May 6th, the billboard was removed, and the party was unfortunately changed to a vigil. R.I.P. Aloha, billboard. Yeah, I remember You live that. in our hearts. I remember that. I- I'm going to say... The, the, that's, that's the Cameron Crowe movie, right? Yeah, that terrible where, Cameron Crowe movie. Where, uh, yeah, we're supposed to believe that Emma, Emma Watson, stone Emma, Watson, Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Emma Stone is Asian. Yeah, we're supposed to believe that she's like na- like half Native Hawaiian. I'm like, ah, no, I don't believe that. But I think the best like life and death of a monument was the candlelight vigil held for the Wrigleyville Taco Bell. Yeah, well, that was a beloved place, and the no, the number of war stories you'd get from there. Oh my god! I uh, I tell you, yeah, um, all for a chalupa. I was there several times uh, mm-hmm. after a game, uh, you know, after a bunch of booze, uh, just shoveling Taco Bell down <laughs> my throat. Get 10 items for like three ninety nine. That's the beauty of Taco Bell, man. <laughs> Walk into Taco Bell with five bucks, you can eat all week. Mm. That's the American dream right there. That's oh, the world man. I want to live in. That's exactly right. Here is Scooter. On W G N Hi Scooter. Hey Mick, how you doing, Nick? All right. It's it's an, it's amazing Nick. that uh, I'm there's I'm talking to an adult and his name is Scooter.
8: Well, my real name's Byron. They call me
0: Scooter from Cicero okay? So all listen.
8: Alright, have you ever tried Sketchels Beef on CERMAC?
0: Have I tried Cistero?
8: what? scheduled Beef?
0: No. No,
8: it's a uh, one block east of Cistero Avenue on cermac Been there for over fifty years. My dad built the original building. It was two uh, Two cousins that started stubby and scheduled beef. It's uh, one of the best beefs around. you got to try it.
0: All right. Thanks for the, thanks for the suggestion. You got it, Nick. All right. Take care. Scooter. My boy Scooter. All right. Here's another thing. You're hanging out in your front room. What's that? F-R-O-N-C-H room. Front room. See, I would have spelled it U-N-C-H, but hey, whatever. Front room. Room. All of the Chicagoisms that exist, French room is the most confusing to outsiders, who typically assume you're referring to some special French-themed room. <laughs> Let's go to some special French-themed room. <laughs> Why do you have this room where all the French room, <laughs> all this room with the all the uh, furniture is wrapped in plastic? Uh, and no one be can sit. Sorely disappointed when they finally get to visit this magical room and realize that it's just a plain, boring living space in the front of your house. On the bright side, they'll be relieved uh, to learn that your gangway is not, in fact, gang-related. Yeah, um, I mean, other other buildings across the country must have front rooms. They just don't call them front rooms. Do they call? Are there, is it that a parlor? Chicago's not. Yeah, no, a front room. Right. No, but I'm saying like. Because you got your living room and you got your front room. Yes, living room has the TV. Everything else. Well, I mean, you see, the front room is where you can't you can't go. Yeah, no, unless there's company. Yeah, and then you open up the front room, and you sit there, and you kind of wonder what you're supposed to do. Because you, you're, just you're, you're supposed to admire the plastic on the furniture. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do. But I wonder if in other places they also have front rooms. But they, they don't call, call, it, call them front rooms. I think that's what it would be they called a call parlor. A room. They call it a room. Just a room. Yeah, it's got to have a name, though. not to... really. Not necessarily. Here, let's all just sit in the room. Yeah. I'm going to say parlor. I think that's what a parlor is. What are you, 19th century? What are you? Listen, man, I don't know. Um, parlor? Yeah, a parlor. Okay. We'll sit in the parlor. Please join me in the parlor. We'll play a game of charades. Join me in the par... What are you, Barry Lyndon? What what are you... (laughs) I mean, that's where the name parlor games comes from, right? Charades is a parlor game. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Where else would you get the name parlor from? I don't know. Parlor. Yeah, parlor. I think parlor involves booze. Does it? I think so. I think you go to the parlor room to drink. I'd have to be pretty drunk to play charades, too, but... uh... You yeah, ever I'm... see the game show Body Language? Is that the one where you like? No, that's Hole in the Wall. Never mind. Hole in the Wall, <laughs> where you have to. What the hell is Hole in the Wall? What are you talking about? What's the matter with you? you been. Did you see this in the parlor? Yeah, I did. I was in the parlor, and this man told me. This gentleman told me about a television show called Hole in the Wall, where like a wall comes at you. And you have to. Oh you have yeah, to shape yeah, yourself. yeah, yeah, yeah. See now, who's crazy now? Yeah, come I on. I don't know if it was was it called Hole in the Wall. I, I think so. And of course, you know what that where, where that derives from. What? That's a, that's a Japanese game show, of course. Oh yeah, that's where it, that's where yeah. it came from. The craziest game shows and stuff come from Japan. Japanese television is nuts. It's awesome. I love it. Oh, it is. It's fantastic, but you, it's nuts. I remember see, they had a show where they would they would like pull pranks on people. Uh huh. There's a guy who's asleep. They bring a cannon into his room, they put it next to his bed. They blow the cannon off, put a hole in his wall. Like they blast a cannonball through the through the wall just to wake him up. It sounds like a jackass stunt. It does, but that's, like, that's Japanese TV. There's a show on Japanese TV where it's just a guy wearing a crazy suit. He hides as people walk down the street. He jumps out and screams at him and scares him. That's a half an hour long. It's just that's what it is. And it's like, it translated, it's like the screaming guy. <laughs> the yell man. That's what. It, that's basically <laughs> it. It's a guy wearing a ridiculous suit, and I think he's got a, bolo, a, b- a bowler on his head. See, we're spending all this time making prestige TV when really all right. we have to do is have put you in a put, suit. Put, put somebody in a suit and have them <laughs> jump out and scare the crap out of somebody, and then the ratings will soar. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, What are typical Chicago things? And we're also going to talk about some very weird traditions from across the country. 312-981-7200. We'll do that after the news. yeah man such a great song. Hi. Nick Degilio here on 720 WGN. We're live in the Skyline studio here till 4 a.m as we are every weekday morning. I'm your overnight dude here on WGN 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. keeping you uh, informed, keeping you company, keeping you entertained. Um, so we've been talking about uh, things that would make you weird anywhere but here in Chicago, some great Chicagoisms and then we're going to get to uh, some very weird bizarre traditions from across the country. But before we do, um, Tom, why don't you uh, set this up here for a second? Mm-hmm. You got a call from one of our listeners, which is uh, named Laura. Yeah, she called in, and uh, she says, "Do you know Foster Brooks?" I say, yeah, I know Foster Brooks. He was the so, guy pretend to be a drunk. Yeah, and this is this Foster Brooks's name has come up on the show many times, right? Because it was one of the very first times I felt really old when I made a Foster Brooks reference in a room full of 20-something-year-olds, year old 20 something year olds, and they were all looking at me like I was nuts. Foster Brooks was very popular in the 70s. You know, Tonight Show, Hollywood Squares, mm-hmm. Teen Martin Show, Variety Shows, and his whole bit was he would pretend to be completely loaded. He would just be drunk. Very funny.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: That was Foster Brooks. That was Foster Brooks. Yep. Well, she, she mentioned that... Uh... <laughs> One of WGN's very own uh, erroneously mentioned his passing today. The, yesterday. Or rather, yesterday. Yesterday he mentioned that Foster Brooks had died. The only problem was that Foster Brooks died in 2001. Yeah, he so died almost, almost 20 years ago. Almost 20 years ago. Yeah. So so, uh, <laughs> so one of our colleagues at WGN thought that Foster Brooks had just died. Yes. Was this something that this person saw online or? Yeah, well, I did decide and I think it'd be best to just I could just play this clip Uh, after uh, Laura mentioned it to uh, mentioned it to me. I
1: immediately went and pulled the clip. Uh, Let's take a listen. And by the way, Foster Brooks died. And this only matters to people of a certain age. And I don't know where the cutoff is. If you're 90, 80, 70, 60, 50, you remember Foster Brooks. If you're under 50, maybe you don't. You remember Foster Brooks. Now, you know where it, it seems like on all those roasts, the Dean Martin roast wasn't he a regular?
5: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And he played a drunk, which right. isn't, you know. Today it'd be tough, wouldn't it? It would be, we don't do drunk anymore. No. When Dick Van Dyke would get drunk on his show once in a while, he played a really good drunk. Great body language, very funny, hilarious. And Foster Brooks' shtick was the drunk. Hilarious. Not so much anymore. No.
4: I have, an, I have an LP, an old LP of Foster Brooks. The whole thing is just him
0: as the drunk.
1: Very funny. So here's his wiki. Brooks was born in Louisville, Kentucky. I'll play a bite from him here in a second. Born in Louisville, Kentucky, May eleventh, 1912. Had seven brothers. Seven brothers. His career started in radio. He was at WHAS Radio in Louisville and gained some fame reporting the Ohio River flood of 1937. He was featured on an emergency broadcast by WHS and also WSM in Nashville, Tennessee. He had that deep, baritone voice. It made him a great singer. made him a great natural radio announcer. He worked in local broadcasting as a radio and TV personality in Buffalo and Rochester, New York. He moved to the West Coast. He launched a career as a stand-up comic and character actor. You may have seen him in The Munsters, The Monkees, and episodes of Bewitched. He also... Because he was a struggling actor in 1960 in California, delivered Christmas mail and phone books. He managed an apartment building in North Hollywood. He worked as a security guard at Los Angeles Dodgers baseball games. Dennis James took him, his friend, in 1969 to a North Carolina charity golf tournament to tell some jokes. And he introduced Brooks to his friend, singer Perry Como, Perry Como loved the act and in turn gave the comedian his major break. Como chose Brooks to open for him at a Las Vegas hotel. The hotel's owners balked at Como's choice due to Brooks' age and lack of fame, but Como insisted and the owner acquiesced, and Foster Brooks was an instant hit. He made his first appearance soon thereafter on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson and regularly appeared on The Dean Martin Show. Hey, uh, Bertrand just whispered into my ear. He said, he died a long time ago. Why are you telling that story today? I guess because it surfaced on my feed over the weekend. So a little dated there on the date, huh?
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> We've all been there. Well, it's it was a lovely tribute. I know, right? I kind of wish that Foster Brooks had, had died. <laughs> it was a lovely it, tribute. John did a beautiful, very nice. beautiful job. He died almost 20 years ago, John. <laughs> And there's Dave going along with it too, and and oh, and yeah. just going along with it. Yeah, Thank he died. God. He died almost twenty years ago. Thank God for that, Steve Bertrand. That would have made him a <laughs> hundred and like ten. Oh yeah, something ridiculous. You know what I mean? That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but Bertrand tells him in his ear, "Hey, uh, uh, John. Yeah, Foster Brooks died like twenty years ago." <laughs> But I will say this. It happens to everybody oh, in this no, no. biz. You get caught with your pants down every once in a Listen, while. Listen, I'm the biggest idiot on the planet. There's, there's, there's no question about it. I'm not throwing shade on John at all. I just think it's hilarious. But yeah. again, he gave him a lovely tribute. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, you know, just take that piece that John did and bring it back to 2001. Yeah. And I'm sure someone will be like, wow, what a fitting what tribute to You, you know, man. it was a lovely tribute to Foster Brooks. <laughs> Lots of stuff I didn't know about, you know, about his history and everything. Yeah. Learned a lot about Foster Brooks. I think that's what we'll all take away, is that whether or not he died 20 years ago or it's yesterday, just, we learned something. It's just so funny. <laughs> I just love Bertrand. Uh, hey, John. <laughs> Listen, okay. Foster, man. Foster Brooks died like 20 years ago. <laughs> Oh, that's great! I love you, John. John's great, man—consummate pro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but seriously, he would have been like a hundred and eight, yeah, <laughs> or something like that, if he died yesterday. Would have been remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> would have been remarkable. Oh, John Williams, the best. John Williams is great. That's so funny, though. I'm just picturing Bertrand in the newsroom going, uh, uh, "John." Listen, I don't want to interrupt. And Foster Brooks died like 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we had to play that clip. We had to play that clip. Little, Just jab a little bit at John. For, uh, is here who's going to be on John's show tomorrow? Who? Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas, that's yeah, right. He's back. Oh, no, Kirk Douglas is alive. <laughs> he's in Bismarck. No, he's alive. Kirk Douglas? Oh, he just died. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. He just died, though. <laughs> he died like six months ago. Yeah. No, but I'm saying, he yeah, was like, yeah. you know, he just died, he considering did. he was like 102 or something yeah, when he passed that's away. True. That's true. He lived a long life, man. Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, Michael Douglas is in his 70s. Yeah, man. How old is Catherine Zeta-Jones? I think maybe 50. Oh, geez. Maybe. Late 40s, maybe. Oh yeah he's like 25 years older than her or something like that Good for you buddy Good for you yeah all right well anyway John Williams is awesome he's the best You can listen to him uh, 9 a.m starting at 9 a.m uh, today he's fantastic he's, he's the best but we had to play that because that was just hilarious as a professional courtesy as a professional courtesy and the fact that Foster Brooks has been mentioned so many times on this show he's like a staple on this show so all right we're gonna get back to things that make us Chicago. Um so uh, uh they, they it, you'd be weird anywhere else but Chicago and then we're going to talk about some very bizarre traditions across the country. If you want to jump in it's 312-981-7200. Yeah, man, Paul Young. I love Paul Young. He's got a great voice. He truly does have a great voice. He had some hair, too. I remember I saw him um, mid-80s, of course, at the Congress. He played the Congress Mm -hmm. way before it ever got condemned. Yeah. I saw a bunch of shows at the Congress. Saw the Pogues two nights in a row at the Congress. Saw, uh, uh, Prodigy. Oh, my God. This is one of my favorite shows I've ever seen. Were you raving? Oh, I love Prodigy. I love, I love Prodigy. Fat of the Land is one of my favorite albums of all time. I'm not kidding. I can see you kind of had a rave. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, Keith Flint is, uh, he passed away. He did. That show was insane. I, you know, um, at the time I was just dating Heather. Mm-hmm. We'd only been together for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, um, she didn't live very far from the Congress. She was, uh, she lived in Bucktown. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we ended up in the balcony because I wasn't going to be down on the floor at the, you know what I mean? During, during a prodigy show. You weren't trying to get kicked in the neck by no, some steel toe boots? Absolutely. No. Um, and uh, so Heather was not really familiar with Prodigy, mm-hmm. and so we, we went, and we were up in the balcony, and we were, fr- you know, like right in the front, right over the stage. So we had great, you know, great view. And she just did not know what to. M- <laughs> did not know what to I would make. I'd say a lot of people wouldn't know what to make of the Prodigy. I'm not even trying to speak.
1: I like the Prodigy, but oh God, Breathe to-
0: with me. <laughs> Take the pressure. <laughs> I love those guys, man. I love them. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll listen safely from home. Oh, uh, no, but the show was insane. I it bet. was absolutely nuts. Uh, uh, you know, people were going nuts on the, on the uh, even in the balcony, like the balcony was like shaking. People were going just yeah. nuts. And Heather's standing next to me going, "What the every ticket probably came with a bag yeah. of angel dust. like, "What the hell what is? What do is you, you like this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> a lot. Yeah, It's wild <laughs> stuff. Real wild. <laughs> breathe with me take the pressure you'll play my game i'll test you psychosomatic i am insane <laughs> Uh little different than paul young I gotta say, the vibe was just a little bit different during during the Paul Young show than not the, by much though. Prodigy, sh- I think Paul Young was probably a Prodigy fan. <laughs> he seems like the kind of guy. You know, who's a big Prodigy fan, like an insane Prodigy fan. Uh, Esmeralda, Ben Anderson, really? Yeah, shout out because he was. On, I was on with him when he died, when Flint died. Oh wow! And so you know, he was like, "Oh man, I'm so depressed." He was like, <laughs> he was like really depressed about it. He's going to go spin yeah. Fat the Land on repeat. Oh, Fat, Fat of the Land. land. Yeah. What a great album. Oh, my God. I used to crank that thing in my apartment. I'm sure your neighbors loved it. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Especially the woman. It's too loud. It's too loud. <laughs> too loud. Shut up and enjoy Prodigy. <laughs> Take the pressure. <laughs> I'll play my game. I'll test you. All right. Ooh. Okay, more Chicago-isms. You ready? All right. You can't talk about Chicagoisms without talking about dibs. I, the dumbest thing of all time. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Not, no other city does that, right? That's got to be exclusive to Chicago. I mean, because, you know, there are a lot of cities that have big snow. Right. But I don't think anybody, you know, digs out a parking spot and then puts lawn furniture there. Or like a children's toy. Children's toy, little wagon. A family heirloom, you know. I, uh, I will like say armoire. this. You ever see that? No, I know. Have you ever seen somebody? Have you ever seen some of these pictures of like people who actually put like living room sets, like a coffee table, yeah. like a couch? <laughs> it's just, I listen. I get it, man. I try. I, listen, I get it. I understand the whole like. I hate I know you, it. Du- I know you dug it out. I, I get it. I hate it. It's a public street. You don't own it, and man. You're exactly right. And listen, it's not like I've never dug out cars because i've dug out a great sure. share of vehicles over the years i haven't driven in a long time i haven't driven in like 20 years or so legally i'll will tell you yeah <laughs> <laughs> there are a few times but uh so listen i've never done dibs and i have i have dug out cars i can't tell you the number of i've never i've never had a i've never had a garage mm-hmm. don't have a driveway always street parking and i have dug out i can't you know listen man i i li- i've lived in this sh- in this city my entire my entire life mm-hmm. so i have dug out a lot of cars in my lifetime never once did i do dibs
1: i'll have to
0: i'll say this i'll have to get back to you af- in 2021 after the win after the winter of 2020 this coming winter i'll i'll see if i change my mind because in previous winters um i didn't really have to i didn't drive many places like i, I didn't drive to work i would drive I, mean, I had a car but i would only drive it if i was leaving the city otherwise i would take public transit so really i wasn't digging out that many i'd have to dig it out every once in a while but usually when i came back there'd be a spot open up and where i live street parking is horrendous yeah, Uptown's not a not an it's easy not, place to park. Not an easy place to Neither park. Neither is Andersonville. I no. lived in Anderson, But I lived on a side street, so it was a little bit, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, a little
1: bit easier yeah.
0: time. But uh, I'll see if I change my tune, but I don't know, man. Uh, I already have a hard enough time parking with or without dibs, or with or without snow. So... I'm just gonna take what I can get. I don't care really that oh well I was gonna park there. I saved it for myself. Well, too bad. That's like saying that's like saying all right. Let's say it's uh 95 degrees outside. The humidity is you know the heat indices are like 105, mm-hmm. and um you have a spot right by your front door, but it's really hot out. So when you leave for work, you put some chairs there so nobody takes it because you want to be closer to your door. It's the same thing yeah I'm it's not the same cool thing I'm not cool with it. It just does not work for me it's a public street yeah it's a, pub- it's a public street if if you don't <laughs> if you don't like the idea of having to park on the street there's a million garages around shell out dude you know have you seen these guys who drive around people who hate dibs have you seen these guys who drive around in trucks and take the stuff up from the from the off the off the off the the road and throw it in the back of their trucks mm mm-hmm. <laughs> <You see? laughs> Listen. If you're free, if if it's if we're gonna say it's a free country and you're free, I can put a you know an armoire or a, or a davenport on the side street from the parlor that you were yeah, from that the you parlor were visiting. <laughs> yeah, if I can put a davenport to to davenport. save to save my spot, why can't someone just take it? You just put it in the street. Yeah, it's anarchy out there. That's put the that's a law of put the it jungle. In the street. That just I'm sorry. That reminds me of a story. I was uh, we were at Ties. One night, Ties till four, four o'clock bar on uh, Ashland right near Addison. Used to work there and hung out there a lot. It was a, you know, insane bar. So my friends and I are in there and, uh, you know, obviously if you're at Ties, if you're at Ties after like, you know, 2.30 in the morning, you've, you've, you've done a little damage already to yourself, booze wise. That's how you end up at Ties. So we're at Ties. My friends and I are at Ties. And by the way, uh, Tom the the guy that I'm talking about, now, the guy that I'm going to quote right now, hmm. is also the guy who said, "How do you get out of this dump?" When we were in the <laughs> Smithsonian. <laughs> so there's about four of us, and we're sitting in a booth at Ties. And uh, th- my friend who my friend his name is Dan. He's the one who said, "Let's get how do we get out of this dump?" While we were at the Smithsonian back in the baseball trip. So we're sitting at Ties, and Dan has had it. He's had his fill. You know, it's like quarter to three, and he's he's done. Nothing good is going to come he's now. He's had enough booze. The rest of us are still, you know, pounding. And so our an, another buddy of mine cuz you said put it in the street. This is because this is one of my favorite one of my favorite quotes of all time. So Dan's Dan's had it and he's just like sitting in the booth and he's really tired and he's he's you know, he's pretty drunk. And we're still, you know, we're still we still we just got a third wind. And so um you know, we're drinking and so one of our friends goes up to the bar to get some more and he brings a he brings a beer back for for Dan and he puts it in front of Dan and Dan's like I don't want it. And he's like just just take it. He's like I don't want it. And he goes, "Come on, man." He goes, "Pour it in the street." <laughs> nah, I can't do that. That's a law. I will I just, not break. I bust it out left. <laughs> just pour it in the street. Pour the damn thing in the street. <laughs> Christ. Uh, that's I I used to say that all the time like after he said that that became like a i running you don't to, I don't you want to know. drink anymore. Just pour it in the street. Pour, pour it in the street. <laughs> <laughs> nah, just I'm just picturing my, my friend who bought the beer to walk walk outside on Ashland and just pour it. just pour. <laughs> pour it in my mouth is what more Pour like it in the street. Uh Yeah, that's that's just that was really funny. It was it was one of the many memorable nights at Ties. And again, nothing nothing good comes from being at Ties. You know, after two thirty in the morning, just to, and at that time That's it was. This was at a time before because Ties got re- refurbished. It became like a hip place. Ties in the old days, Ties was a place where you would go to get stabbed. You know what I mean? <laughs> Excuse me, sir. I'll uh, take my nightly stabbing. No, please. I mean seriously. Hey, what are we going to do? Let's get some coke and stab each other. Let's go to Ties. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was kind of what it was. And then they they changed it. The son took over. His son, you know, Ty's son took over. And said, maybe changed 75% it, less Refurbished stabbies. it, and it became totally yuppie, Total Anybody who was in Wrigleyville drinking, they all came to Ty's afterwards. And then it be, also became an industry place. Lots of bartenders and bartenders, you know, and servers and stuff would go there. But this, when the port and the street thing happened, it was still a place where you can get cocaine and stabbed. And it had, by the way, it had that, you know, the bowling machine with the little discs? Where you, slam it and, uh, you what? Know. Wait, you mean like what shuffleboard? Yeah, but it's bowling. Oh, like I it's know got that. pins. It's oh, cool. Like a shuffleboard thing. You put, but, you know, it's, you but put. It's got pins on it. You okay. got to knock down the pins. Yeah, it had one of those. That was the only thing that was in there that was that wasn't full of cocaine and knives. <laughs> All right, here's some weather for you. When we come back. We'll talk about everything that is vintage Chicago uh, for tonight. Scattered clouds. Seasonable temperatures, diminishing winds at a low around 61, but uh, mid 50s near the inland locations. Wednesday and Thursday, mostly sunny days, mainly clear, eminently comfortable. Uh, high uh, Wednesday at 80, upper 70s by the lake shore, and then a little warmer on Thursday with a high of 85. Friday, good deal of sunshine, might have some uh, cumulus clouds. Slow warming, but the humidities will remain comfortable in a high of 86 for Saturday. Clouds will build. It'll be warm. Scattered afternoon thunderstorms are possible in a high of 88. It's currently 72 degrees at O'Hare, 72 at Midway, 70 at the lakefront. Um, all right, more things that are quintessentially Chicago. 312 981 7200. Nick degilio here on 720 WGN, live in the Skyline Studios here on uh, WGN. We are here until uh, 4 o'clock, uh, as we are every weekday morning. 4 o'clock, we head over to Bradley Place. Our colleagues over on the TV side of WGN get some uh, early morning news from that team. And then the great Bob Surratt has your morning drive at 5. 312-981-7200. We are talking about things that are quintessentially Chicago. Here is Wayne on WGN. Hi, Wayne.
6: Hi, how are you doing, guys? All right. Yeah, I just wanted to, to say, when I got my first apartment, I had a small kitchen table that I had up against the wall, but I had no chairs. So uh, we had a snowstorm, and I was driving down the street, and I saw a really nice wooden chair, so I <laughs> popped it in the trunk, brought it home. And so, no, the next day, I'm driving by the same parking spot, and there's another chair matching the chair I already... So that happened three days in a row. So I got three beautiful wooden chairs... To my first apartment.
0: That's the best, man. <laughs> that is a, that is the best. Oh, Wayne, that's awesome, dude. That is hilarious. Uh, thank you, man. You're welcome. That's Have a great night. hilarious, man. Oh, Wayne. That is hilarious. That's what I call thrifty. Oh. I like I it. I got three matching chairs for my table. <laughs> I wonder... <laughs> That's was, it, fantastic. was there any point that he was just like, this is odd that chairs keep showing yeah. up in the exact same place every day? Yeah. Well, or how about the person who's putting the chairs out? They come out and go, "What? The, who the hell keeps taking my chairs? Better put another chair. Better put out another chair, a matching chair. Surely this one will be the last one. Oh my God, that's funny. I would definitely think twice before taking Dib's furniture, though. I don't think I'm that bold because I feel like there's some guy probably sitting there or look, watching, like look yes, through the window. He's got like a dibs, like a lookout or something like that, just to make sure. Yeah, but that he's not digits. home. If you, if you if you've got, I know, but he might have a furniture, network of spies. A network of spies. I was going to say, if you've got furniture in the parking spot, that means you're not home. So, all right, um, more things that are uh, very Chicago. How about this? Going outside in shorts and a t-shirt on a 40 degree day. See, I, you know, I've never done that. Well, me neither, because I'm not yeah. an idiot. <laughs> Some people are really all about it. The minute it's over, like thirty-five. Oh no! Just, yeah, Shh. no, no, no. People put shorts on. I mean, it's ridiculous. Seriously, if it's like, like, like they said here, forty degrees, people would be walking around with shorts on, and I, I don't understand it. Look, you know, everybody wants warmer weather. People get sick of. People definitely get sick of winter. There's no question about it. You want things to warm up. But just because it's a little bit warmer than, than, than it was the day before doesn't mean you should go out in your shorts. Nah. How about the guys who walk around, like, let's say it's 45 degrees outside, 40 degrees. Dude walking around, shorts, but he's got a scarf on. How about that? Pure mer- pure lunacy. Like, have you, you've seen those guys just walking yeah. around. Oh, yeah. they, they, they've got, like, no coat, shorts. But they've got a scarf on, keeping their neck nice and warm. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really cold, but just right here, just here. I'm going to have just my, right little, here, right my little, my little scarf hand on. on. Is that a fashion statement? Just walking around with a scarf on? <sighs> I don't know. That, that's... I, fashion statement mean you look like an idiot. Is, <laughs> is that that's the statement you're making? I'm, I'm telling everybody that I'm, I'm an warm idiot. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an idiot. It says while the southern portion of the country is furiously arming themselves with down-filled jackets and thermal gloves at the mere mention of forty degrees. Chicagoans are gleefully ripping these items off. After you've survived sub-zero weather, 40-degree temperatures feel absolutely blissful. Who cares if there's still snow on the ground? It's shorts weather, damn it. Jeez. Hmm. As a person who wrote this, man, I ain't got nothing to do with it. Fair enough. Uh, Here's Chris on WGN. Go ahead, Chris.
7: Hey, Nick. How's it going? Hey. Hey, um, I come from the south side when I was a kid and when it was the winter of '79. And I think we got like a foot and a half snow in there Yeah, the,
0: bl- the blizzard of 79, man. I remember it well. So everybody's out
7: shoveling out their spot. There's always one person that doesn't shovel it out. So he, everybody comes home at night. There's one spot open. He takes the chairs, goes around someone's lawn, and he parks there. Guy so tells him, because what are you doing? That's my spot. He goes, oh, it's a public street, man. He goes, you sure about that? He's like, yeah. All right. Goes in the house. Later that night, the neighbor came out with his hose. Yep. Made it his car a complete ice block. Yep,
0: uh, and the next
7: day you just heard him chipping away at the ice. Man, his car was completely covered in ice. Oh, I know that's that's, that's that's
0: a, that's a common practice. People, Ouch. people, no, that's a common thing, man. That's a it common thing. Funny, if man. you t- if you take somebody's spot, like you, you know the the dib spot, you take somebody's spot, they'll bring out the hose, man. They will bring out I mean, the hose.
7: You shovel it for like an hour. Everybody's out there doing it. You're not doing it, and then you're gonna tell someone else, oh, it's public property. Yeah. It was hysterical. Though. Well,
0: now, see, now, that's, see, okay, I will say this. I yeah. can't stand dibs, but that's a that's a real stupid move right there. Like, if you're not going to dig anything out and you take somebody's spot, that's just, that's ignorant. Now, I can understand, because I don't like dibs. I'm not going to take somebody's spot. You know what I mean? Like, take the furniture out and, and take the spot, especially if I didn't dig anything out myself, you know?
7: Well, neighbors help each other. I mean, we were helping everybody shovel out, sure. and you just didn't decide to come out to do it. And... Yeah.
0: And, that, and I'll tell you something, for, man. man, that was, that was, the blizzard of 79 was something. It was, yeah, it was, what? it was unbelievable. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, so, cars were stuck everywhere. Everywhere. Were stuck. Everywhere. It was nuts. Okay, Chris, thanks, buddy. Take it. Yeah. That was the, the some, that, the, that, that right there, the blizzard of 79, that was when the plows put the, the giant pile of snow next to my. Next to my apartment under the L-Tracks. and yeah, just hang out. The giant pile of snow that we would slide down onto Addison. We would get on our sled slide down the big ice mountain and out onto Addison Street. Lucky you. And we'd stand on top of the, the uh, snow mountain and, and hang off the bottom of the L-Tracks. <laughs> Blizzard of 79, man. That hill lasted a long time, too. I mean, it melted down slowly, you know? But we got a good te- we got a couple of months worth of insanity out of that. Uh all right, how about this? Casually mentioning that you're taking LSD. Oh, see? Ooh. That would be Lakeshore Drive. But do you refer to it as LSD? I say Lakeshore. I say Lakeshore, yeah. Yeah, most people I I I mean sometimes you say L S D, but um, I never say L S D. No. I, it just depends. I say Lakeshore or Lakeshore yeah. Drive. Or the or I will say The Drive. I'm going to take The Drive over to Blah. Yeah, man, The Drive. <laughs> Here's <There's> some eagles. <laughs> um, <laughs> trips on LSD are so much fun, so beautiful, and magical. Well, unless you're stuck in traffic, of course. And you know, if you're one of those uh, poor souls that got stuck during the snowpocalypse. Oh, during the snow apocalypse, Roger. An Trooper. event which we're pretty sure qualifies as a bad trip. <laughs> see i like that yeah uh how about this going into panic mode at the sight of a yellow light panic mode i
1: don't know here's what they the here's word. what they
0: say there's nothing worse than getting a yellow light just before you reach an intersection your pulse quickens fight or flight mode kicks in what do you do whether you opt to slam on your brakes, potentially causing a fender bender, or floor it in an attempt to barrel through the intersection in under three seconds, you're guaranteed to terrify an out-of-towner that has the misfortune of being in your car as you try to avoid getting flashed by the red-light camera. Thanks, Rom. <laughs> Don't, I mean, isn't that, that's not just true of Chicago. Oh, and, and and I mean, it, obviously, they're they're pointing out the red-light camera thing. Yeah, the That's point, the whole yeah. point, is that, is that. Now, the the yellow... I don't know. I will say that I've started getting more chancy with yellows since driving in Chicago a lot more. Normally, I would probably s- slow down, but yeah, you remember if, the scene in Starman, right? Oh God, I haven't watched Starman in a long time. Come on now, don't shout at me. It's a great movie. It's John I'm, Carpenter. It's Jeff not, Bridges. I'm not just Allen, that fact. Charles Martin Smith, <laughs> Richard Jekyll. You can name as many people <laughs> as you want. You could say <laughs> so. So as you as you know, it, uh, Jeff Bridges basically plays an alien mm-hmm. who uh, takes on the, per, the 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 likeness and persona, not the persona, but the likeness of uh, Karen Allen's dead husband, played by Jeff Bridges. So, um, she, like, they're on a road trip. The movie's basically, it's a road trip movie. So, they're on a road trip because he's got to meet up with his, you know, fellow aliens. It's like E.T. He's got to meet up with his fellow aliens, you know. Uh, in the middle of Arizona, maybe is what he calls it. Arizona, maybe. Um, so he has to. He's driving while she's asleep. So he, and so at one point, um, he's going into an intersection and the light turns yellow, and he floors it and basically like goes through the light as it just turns red. And Karen Allen like wait like was like what are you doing? What's wrong with you? What, did, what what's the matter with you? He goes no, I watched you very closely. Uh, red light means stop. Green light means go. Yellow means go, means go very fast because <laughs> he watched her drive. Yeah. The yellow light is a challenge. Yeah. Well, I mean, the point of this, like I said, this this entry is all about the red. I mean, they're yeah, pointing out the red light, light camera. cameras. The, but, but, you know, approaching an intersection when that yellow light hits, that's a true thing. It's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to stop or am I going to gun it? Yeah. You, you kind of like go into the zone. Exactly. For a exactly. Like- <laughs> it's like, okay, what am I going to do here? And it's not, and that has nothing to do with red light cameras. I mean, I think that's true of anybody who around the country who approaches an intersection and that yellow light hits. It's not exclusive to Chicago, but yeah, the red light, the red light, or the yellow light challenge, right there. How about this? That neon green relish may look weird, but it's delicious. While nobody really knows when or why Chicagoans started putting atomic green relish on their hot dogs. There are a few theories. While you'll be hard pressed to find this delicious variation of relish outside of the Chicagoland area, it's a staple in our kitchens, right along with jardinera and celery salt. Yeah. Jardinera is very Chicago. Yep. Very, very Chicago. You ever had a jardinera sandwich? With just jardinera? Yeah. No. Well, then. I I've not. Lived, I mean, yeah. I've I've had it on on sandwiches, but there were other products on the sand on the bread than just jardiner. Yeah, there was a time period when I was in college. I was super broke, so I would just make jardiner sandwiches because I didn't have any meat. <laughs> have some ramen and some jardiner. Yeah, there you go. All right, let's take a break here for some weather, and we'll come back and uh, wrap it up. We got more uh, Chicago ish things, and then we'll get to that uh, to the weird uh, bizarre traditions across the country. We will probably maybe do that tomorrow because we've been having so much fun talking about all this stuff that happens in Chicago. Uh, All right, so here's some weather for tonight. Scattered clouds, seasonable temperatures, diminishing winds, a low of 61. Mid-50s, though, uh, inland locations. Wednesday and Thursday, mostly sunny days, mainly clear at night, comfortable. Lake breezes, a high of 80 on uh, Wednesday, uh, 85 on Thursday. For Friday, a good deal of sunshine. We might get some uh, summertime cumulus clouds. Um, uh, It'll warm up a little bit, but the humidities will remain comfortable in a high of 86. For Saturday, clouds will build. It'll be warm. Scattered afternoon thunderstorms are possible in a high of 88. Currently, 72 degrees at O'Hare, 72 at Midway, and 70 at the lakefront. All right, we'll uh, wrap it up. If you want to jump in here with things that are absolutely Chicago, 312 981 7200. (laughs) White Snake. I don't know why I thought you weren't going to say it this time. Uh, hi, it's Nick Degilio and uh, WGN here. What, what are you doing? <laughs> Ta- you talking to me? Get up. Uh, we're here till 4 o'clock. Uh, at 4 o'clock, we head over to Bradley Place, the TV side of WGN, get some early morning news from them, and then uh, Bob's out at 5 for your morning drive. Uh, we're talking things that are quintessentially Chicago. Like the uh, the crazy neon green relish. You like the neon green relish? I do, I do, I do. Me too. I used to not like it. I came around. Some places don't have it. It's. I'll say this. If they don't have it, it's not the end of the hot dog for right. me. Superdog, they have it. They do have it. Superdog has the uh, neon green relish. They also have Mr. and Mrs. Superdog. Yeah. Do they have a name? Um, probably... Chuck and Anna or something. Chuck and Anna yeah. Superdog. Yeah, Chuck, Mr. And Mrs. Chuck and Anna Superdog. Isn't he wearing like a... Like a loincloth of like sorts. Of, well, yeah. I mean, it's more than a loincloth. Sure. It's it's like a Tarzan thing. Yeah, Tarzan. It's more than a loincloth. Yeah, it comes around like the shoulder. Right. It's a little bit more like a Flintstone. Right. And it's le- it's like a leopard skin, Right. Right. So that implies that there's a world where a giant hot dog hunted and killed a leopard for its pelt, and then made hot dogs out of the out of the leopard. Found it in Wisconsin. Oddly, <laughs> <laughs> it's a throwback to something we did earlier in the throw show. Back to five hours. Ago. It was about five hours ago. We were talking about black <laughs> leopards that were that have been spotted. Weird black leopards that have been spotted in Wisconsin, and they're not supposed to be there. Creepy mystery that you can watch a documentary on on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Weird creatures running around. You love the mysterious weird stuff at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's it's good the, stuff. Yeah. All right, how about this? Getting verbally abused at restaurants for fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. What is, what is it with Chicagoans and, their, and our love for uh, abusive restaurants? First, there was Ed DeBevick's. Which, truth be told, seemed to heavily tone down the snark in their final years. I used to hang out at DeBecks all the time. Would you say that's true? That they kind of reeled I, it in? I didn't. I don't know because I, I hung okay. out there. I hung out there in the late eighties, early okay. early nineties, because I knew like four or five people that worked there. Mm-hmm. So I would just like sit, you know, like at the at the at the bar, right? And uh, and they would abuse you. You ever see the uh, the episode of uh, of SNL with uh, when Jennifer Lawrence hosted? Uh, 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 and it took place like in an Ed Debevec's like, I uh, that's reaching a little bit for me. It's it I'd was hilarious because she plays a waitress, you know, one of those abusive sort of waitresses. Uh-huh. But she and I can't remember who the guy was, who the who the who the uh, cast member was who played the guy. But she's like, I'm going to kill you. You like she she got very like scary Very and, like, personal. Her, her insults weren't what's what's going on there, honey? Nice face. You know, it wasn't yeah. like that. It was more like. Uh, you know, um, like she had a knife at one point. She's brandishing it, standing near him. That's pretty funny. It it was very, very funny. Yeah, I've only I only went to Ed Debevic's one time. I only went the there one, one down time. the one that used to the be one down d- here. Yeah, the one that used to be down here. I thought it was condos fun. now. Condos. Yep. But uh, Dick's Last Resort. Yeah, they, I had friends times. who worked there too. I don't know what's going on here, man. It um, sounds like your friends are uh. A type of hole. Well, they had to. They had to have. They had to fake names. That you had to come up with your own name at, at Ed <laughs> So my, my one of my buddies was Flip because he used to flip the coleslaw. Like because the coleslaw came on a saucer. Oh, and he would come and flip it. He would flip it, and it would land back on its bat without spilling any coleslaw. Wow, that's actually that's impressive. He was a very impressive. It was a very impressive, dude. And then uh, the the girl that I hung out with the most her her name at uh, her name was in real life it was Denise but she was Dixie
1: Dixie was yeah. she was she she's a from the Southern south girl. she yeah. was yeah
0: Southern girl with a bit of an attitude that's right at least it's an opportunity for you to get your acting chops and you got Hooters right across the street oh jeez I dated a Hooters girl you dated a Hooters I did. girl picked her up at that at that Hooters now let me ask you this how much of a move did that look like you know like. You'd pull up to the Hooters. There's a bunch of guys drinking Coors Light and eating wings, and you stroll in. Well, I was with a group. Oh, you were with a group. Yeah, we were at the table. It was like, and she was our she was our waitress, and I just we hit it off. You hit it off, and you're just like, let's let's go. Yeah, I was like, because I mean, it was there was clearly something going on besides like there was a connection. Yeah, like there was there was a little electricity between the two of us, and so I when when we were about to leave, I'm like, listen. You know, can I have your number? And she gave it to me. Wow. Yeah. And I'm guessing did you you called her, went on a couple days. I called her the next day, man. What are you kidding? Yeah. No, I mean. And we dated for, I don't know, four months, something like that. What was that like dating a Hooters girl? It was pretty cool. Pretty cool? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you tell people? Did you brag? Um, well, my friends knew. Sure. Because sure. I was with like four or five of my friends, including Port in the street. He was there. And I was with, you know, my friends and they all knew that I picked her up, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, you know, I, I mean, I would bring her out socially. We would hang out socially. And so people knew it was like, did Jillio's hanging out with the Hooters? I feel bad. I don't mean to demean her because of what she was doing at the She's time. A perfectly lovely woman. Yeah, sure. She just happened to be a Hooters She's girl. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I can't get over that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Did you ever get jealous? Like me? The, yeah, because it's like her job. Oh, because to like flirt no, with dudes of and not. stuff. No. Okay. I didn't think so, but I figured I'd ask. No.
1: I was just I I guess I
0: wondered if she ever picked up anybody, if anybody ever picked her up before at Hooters. Was this, was this I, a I, regular it, it is, occurrence? No, listen, it's forbade. Is it really? Oh yeah. So that's why we had to keep it on the down low. Okay, so she what, wrote it on the back of a napkin, just kinda like slid it. She, over. she did write it on the back of a napkin. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'm I'm hip. I'm yeah. hip to the Hooters tactics. Yeah, no, but she was a perfectly lovely girl. I'm sure. You know, no I doubt. mean, you know, look, you know, um, obviously, if you're waiting tables, you want to make money, and Hooters girls make a lot of money. Yeah, you got to have personality to work at Hooters. See, she's got a great. She had a great personality. Yeah, huge personality. She, she did. It. <laughs> <laughs> she did have. A, she did have a huge personality. I'll, t- I'll tell you that. All right, how about this? Putting a giant inflatable rat in front of your workplace. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, what was that? That's uh, strikes. for Strikes, right? Uh, I guess. Given that this is a Union town, most born and bred Chicagoans have become accustomed to seeing giant inflatable rats pop up around town. Heck, some people have even seen one get shanked. However, if you ever stumble upon uh, Scabby the Rat... And yeah, that's his name. Uh, pop up in uh, a non-blue-collar part of town, you're apt to hear utterly confused out-of-towners saying entertaining things like, "Is that a rat? Inf- is there a rat inf- infestation at your door?" Yes. Yeah, and then finally, the last uh, <laughs> Chicago thing: devouring food from the igloo cooler of a random man in a bar. You know he's got a restaurant now. I know, Tamale Guy. Tamale Guy. God bless him. I can't tell you the, the amount of money I've spent uh, gave that guy over the years hanging out in bars. Mm-hmm. His tamales are good. They're good. Very good. And I'm glad the, the tamale guy, I'm glad people came to the rescue for the tamale guy. Yeah, the community rallied around him. They did. That's a positive story. That's a happy thing that has happened. Yeah. It's good to have that. Love the tamale guy. Tamale! Well, don't forget Sergeant Slaughter, the guy who brings the meat. Please. That guy's the king. Guy's the king. Walks in, got the white butcher coat on. I can't tell you the amount of money I spent on that guy, too. Walking out of the bar at the end of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, with a log of sausage and a giant pepperoni. (laughs) All right. Let's break. We got the early morning news from the TV side coming up.